As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at BTE Racing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Kenny Schrader, and the strip teaser. Big Jed, we are five days removed from the Mickey Thompson Million. We got a lot to dissect. Yeah, Luke, uh, as we'll talk about in the show a lot, it was probably the top of the list for bizarre millions, but possibly even (laughs) bizarre events. Uh, A lot of stuff happened, a lot of crazy situations, but they got through it. It got wrapped up, and KB got or did. Um, but overall, it uh, certainly produced a lot of opportunity for us to discuss it, and we will. That we will. This is this might be our longest episode, um, but you just can't condense this situation. Like there's there's a lot of layers, a lot of nuance here, and uh, and I think we broke it down. Um, in as detailed a way as possible. It's uh, and there's just a lot to unpack. Is if you've mashed 
play or mash download, you probably realize that you have two plus hours of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast coming. Hopefully you've got a long drive or a good way to break this up. But um, yeah, we'll cover everything from stem to stem uh, of the 2020 million dollar drag race. That's everything in this show is million dollar race related because there's just so much to unpack. And with that said, Jed, we gloss over the rest of the show. Um, what I know has been a, a pending announcement from you, but nonetheless, a big announcement. I wanted to give you this opportunity to, uh, to share with the listeners uh, kind of your plans for 2021 and going forward. Well, look, I appreciate that. I actually put it on Facebook last night and I, you know, I expected a little feedback, um, but <laughs> certainly didn't expect the, the love and, and kind comments that I got and so many of them. And I appreciate that very much, but I did uh, decide that, 2021, I will step away from the microphone. I will not be announcing any of the the premier uh, bracket races that I've been blessed to, to be involved in. Um, you know, this is I've been doing this since 2010 now, and it has taken a lot of vacation time and a lot of personal time, and that's all been well and good for the most part. As JJ enjoyed going with me and. You know, we've had a blast watching him grow on the mic and do all those things. But at the same time, um, you know, I'm still somewhat of a newlywed. I've been married uh, 10 months or a little over and um, missed family vacation with the family uh, this year. They they had to go without me. I just didn't have the available time off of work to be able to go. So uh, that, along with some other things, is just becoming more and more challenging with uh, the career path that I've taken with uh, my my employer so decided to step away from the mic for 2021 you know it could be and beyond or I, I could you know spend so much time with the, the wife that she says you know you really really need to go to do, work some races get out of here so we'll see how that goes but uh, I won't be on the microphone for 2021 I'm going to miss it I am uh, again blessed to have some amazing opportunities to be a part of unbelievable events and work for the best promoters in the game and it's been a wonderful wonderful opportunity that i never would have gotten if the, the good lord hadn't to give me just a little bit of gift of gab and some math skills so for whatever reason i got stuck on that microphone at the, the spring fling in, in 2010 at bristol um and the way that i called the races somehow got popular and you know people wanted to hear more of it which is still uh, unbelievable to me but it happened and it, it led to some other opportunities. So, you know, for Peter and Kyle and Emily and Jenny folk, and Randy folk and everyone else I've worked for you included Luke, I've, I've worked for you at your events and, you know, I've worked for a lot of promoters. Um, I just, I want to say thank you to all of them for giving me these opportunities. It's, it's been amazing. And certainly for the, the people that have reached out and, and, you know, I've made me feel like I've impacted their life in a positive way. And all the people on the chat bleachers and all those people, Motor Mania TV, just the list goes on and on. But I want to say thank you to each and every one of them for the opportunity. And, and I'm definitely going to miss calling some laps. And, you know, I might get to make a guest appearance here or there. But for the most part, I'm just going to focus on being a racer and hanging out in the pits with everybody else and not having to worry about doing interviews and those things. Um, staying up till the last car goes down and staying there till the last car goes down on the last day. So those type things been wearing pretty heavily on me. So I know I got a little long 
disappointed there. I apologize. Thank you for the opportunity to, to announce that. But that uh, 2020 is going to wrap me up for the microphone, at least for the, the foreseeable future. Jed, I guess the good news is that you are incredibly talented and in high demand in seemingly everything that you do. And that creates a lot of opportunities. The bad news is that you are incredibly talented and in high demand in seemingly everything that you do. And that creates a ton of opportunities. And there's only so many <laughs> go around, right? I appreciate that. Again, I, I, I can't let myself believe that, but I'm very appreciative that, that you or anyone else would feel that way. It's, it's been, been awesome. Let me just say, and I know that you're being inundated with this, but just on behalf of sportsman drag racers and fans everywhere, thank you for what you have brought to our sport. Because I don't, I don't think that you'll ever give yourself enough credit for it. You've changed the game and you've brought a level of entertainment and a level of understanding to the booth that I think was unprecedented. And you've basically set the tone for those that have come after you and basically kind of become the, the standard, the bar. And our sport is better for it, without question. Like, I, I think you've been a big part of the growth of the big dollar bracket scene, and you would never allow yourself to believe that. But your contributions here have been massive. So while I know that um, you're making the right move, right, and I, and I, and I support you in everything that you do, um, you'll be missed, man. You've been a big, big part of this. So congratulations on your body of work. And, uh, and at the same time, like I'm proud of you for making this call because I know it wasn't easy. Uh, but I appreciate that very much. It, it was extremely difficult. And um, I think uh, nobody's tuned in to hear uh, people, anyone talk about me and uh, definitely um, hear me sit over here and sob on this end of it. So let's just get to this crazy ass show. Oh, all right, yeah, let's dive into the million. Here we go. First thing first, PJ Jed, I don't think there's anywhere else to start. It's probably the same place that we'll finish. I, I think uh, our listeners are expecting, and our show notes definitely reflect, that this entire episode is going to be dedicated to the 25th annual, the golden anniversary, Mickey Thompson Million. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it was quite a show. Um, there's going to be a lot of opinions, and I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in, in our take on it, but... One thing is for sure, uh, everyone that watched it would agree that it was uh, it was very interesting, to say the least. Uh, looking forward to discussing it here this evening. Well, I'll just say this, Jed. As the host of this podcast, quality content makes our job tremendously easier, and the million just keeps delivering. Like <laughs> I never thought it was possible to have a million more bizarre a finish to the million more bizarre than 2018, we might be there. Um, this is it's possible. Wild. Obviously, uh, the bulk of our conversation is going to center around 
what happened really in the last three rounds of the Million Dollar Race main event from eight cars on. It got somewhere between interesting, maddening, bizarre, sad. Uh, I ran the gamut of emotion watching. So we'll get to all of that. But I don't want to start there, Jed. I want to start. I, I feel like it's necessary. It's our place to give credit where credit is due. Because when we followed the Spring Fling Million at Bristol, we spent the first 15 minutes of the show singing the praises of Scotty Richardson. We did the same for Jeff Sarah after the Great American Guaranteed Million in Memphis. Kevin Brannon is a deserving winner of this event in any big event. And I don't want to take away the focus from him. I don't want to let the surrounding story take precedent, precedence over his tremendous accomplishment. We will get to the story, but let's first focus a little bit on KB. Yeah, very deserving. Uh, you know, it's, it was great to see KB get his name on that list of winners and um, accomplish something that I think people have expected him to do for quite some time, although that can be an unrealistic expectation. But uh, KB's a talented racer and, and a guy that you just think of when you think of wins on this stage. So I was, uh, it was great to stand there with him. He was uh, quite a humble champion. KB, long time super talented performer at both ends of the racetrack and i think if anything what this event showcased in addition to that is just the the mental framework from which he operates because as we'll get into the late rounds of the million specifically for kevin are unlike anything that he's ever been a part of unlike anything really any of us been a part of and yet by and large almost uh exclusively he was able to lay down stellar lap after stellar lap in really bizarre circumstances. And I just think that that speaks to the mental fortitude, the, that, that thing that is so hard to define in great racers that makes racers like Kevin so special. And I think that in the end, this is subjective to say, obviously, I really believe in the end, like we, we crown the right winner. Like, I think Kevin was deserving. And if you just look back over the course of the day, he made the best runs of basically anyone on the track, certainly anyone that was there late. Like, he was double O and either dead on or driving the finish line to nothing just about every single round. Um, in some cases, repetitively in the same round. Um, I, I Obviously, it's a subjective take. I think that Kevin is not only deserving, like, I would go so far as to say, I think the right guy despite all the controversy. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a bizarre situation. We'll, we'll talk about that at length. But um, he battled through extremely difficult circumstances. And, you know, he, he had a two-time winner in the other lane when it, when it reached his highest level of difficulty, uh, a guy that's capable of winning every race he enters. So, you know, he, he battled through some serious adversity there uh, and, and was very deserving no doubt and kb has he's won on just about every big stage you could imagine as you mentioned this was his first million dollar race win he joins that hall of fame list he's been close before not only at the uh, the og million so to speak um he's also been a semi-finalist i believe at the spring fling million in vegas like he's knocked on the door of this on a few occasions to see him bust it down really cool stuff and in 
a, a deserving winner and, and obviously a very humble winner. Like that's just the way that Kevin goes about things. It, it was, it was a lot of fun to see his post-race interview and just kind of the way that he's handled it since. And I think uh, for anyone, even um, someone of Kevin's accomplishments and, and resume, um, this is a career highlighting win that I think is, is much deserved. Like I say, he's been close on this stage before and when you combine his million dollar race win now with his super comp world championship from 2015, I believe he joins a, a group there that is smaller. I don't know. Maybe it's larger than even than most people think, but there's not many people that have accomplished both of those things. NHRA world championship million dollar race win. It's Sherman Adcock. It's Ray Ray Miller. It's big Ed Richardson. And now it's Kevin Brandon. And Luke Mogaki. Well, if you expand it past the, the OG million, you could include myself, you could include Scotty Richardson. I hope I'm not missing anybody there. But nonetheless, like that is a short list. That's some Mount Rushmore type stuff. It is. The, you know, obviously KB had reached a level in our sport that was extremely high. And the next level was not, there was not much to accomplish to get to the next level, although it was one of the most difficult accomplishments in our sport. And it's good to see him finally elevate to that level and, and be recognized as a guy who's pretty much now accomplished everything you can do. All right. So if we had told you a week ago, Kevin Brandon won the 25th annual million. It's a no surprise to anyone. And I mean, it's a story because anybody winning the million is a story. But you think, yeah, okay, whatever. It really wasn't the story of the event <laughs> at all. <laughs> let's get into the story, Jed. Let's, let's kind of take this. We'll try to roll through the, the sequence of events just to explain, perhaps to anyone that didn't see it all in full, blow by blow, what happened, and do our best to explain uh, why perhaps some of the decisions behind it and give some, some commentary, both as a, as a racer, as a fan, as uh, as you know, we both have experienced as a race director, promoter, like just try to, to put some perspective into all this. Cause it was wild. Oh, definitely the wildest I've been a part of Luke. Um, you know, from a behind the scenes look anyway, um, really, I mean, we'll, we'll break it down here as we move forward, but, uh, as you know, it all started, well, I'll take that back. It, it actually started, uh, Blake round three. Well, let's with, go back to that. Let's, let's okay. start at the round of eight, which I think is seventh round, right? We're in the quarterfinals of the million because this is obviously where it, where it blew up. Yeah. So <laughs> go ahead. I'm, uh, I'm announcing I actually, um, wanted to come in and you heard it in the intro, uh, why I wanted to come in and catch a, a late round, um, but uh, I wanted to do the round of eight and just let let the guys kind of have the glory and the thunder there and the the semis and the final. So I'm just going to catch that round of eight real quick, be my swan song, and uh, I'm going to head out the the tower. Well, it didn't work out that way at all. Um, Gary Williams and and KB were paired up, and they make their run. And, you know, it's uncommon to see G-Dub 
light it up 87, but it's not uncommon for that to happen where you might let go of nothing, re-get, re-grab, and, you know, cause yourself some trouble. So when he leaves, you know, KB's uh, pretty good up front. I see Gary's 87. Immediately I'm like, oh, no, William's in trouble here. And and I'm going through my process, and then he lights it up seven under. And I knew immediately, mm, we got a problem. And I honestly, I was – I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. I didn't even really know what to say because, you know, if that's third round, it's not a problem. Oh, guys, look like we might have had an issue there. We're going to have to come back and do a rerun or something. You know, I, immediately I would know what to say. This is the quarterfinals of the million. So it, I had no idea what to say. Given the eyeballs on it, the attention on it, the stakes involved, I guess at any round late in the million, but particularly at that point, right? Not only have you got the the winner's purse dangling, but every win light at that point is worth a lot of money, essentially doubles the purse, right? Or doubles your take home. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that it would be possible to pick a worse time for something like this to present itself. I couldn't imagine, you know, maybe around later. Uh, would be the only way but it it was at a terrible time and and having also been a racer in the event and be a right lane racer from the point that we just skipped a little bit ago in the third round where we had a rerun is the point where I realized oh crap my first round run was not accurate so we got a problem so I know we got a problem and then this happens so immediately i know there's an issue but i'm not real sure how they're going to handle it because it's the quarterfinals of the million right obviously things sticky let's take just for a moment ted for our our listeners that that may not be completely following along or may have watched this happen and not completely understand the issue or at least uh our perception of the issue okay the do you want to try to walk through this you want me to, to to explain it no, go ahead. You got it. So <clears throat> essentially what my perception of what happened, and, and I think yours as well, is that the right lane had a <clears throat> obviously variable, perhaps uh, obviously variable, obviously random, perhaps um, very intermittent issue that most racers would refer to as a, as a quote unquote lazy infrared beam. Essentially, what is, again, my perception of what's happening is that as the right lane racer leaves the stage beams, in this case, as Gary Williams leaves the stage beams, something is connecting or is is basically keeping the stage beam from connecting after Gary's front tire has left the beam, meaning that he's moving, he's headed down track before the timing system realizes that he's moving and headed down track. Okay, so his front tire exits the beam, and at some point, whether that's two hundredths, three hundredths of a second, seven hundredths of a second later, that stage beam reconnects and stops the reaction timer and starts the elapsed timer. When this happens, again, we refer to it as a lazy infrared. It's really an oversensitive infrared. Like some, it's picking up something across the racetrack that is not allowing that beam to reconnect. Correct. The result of that is that the timer doesn't start until Gary's 
you know, whether that's six inches or two feet down the racetrack, the result is a really late reaction time and a correspondingly fast ET. Because again, he's kind of got a two foot head start on the ET timer, right? The, 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 the clock's not starting until he's two feet out of the beams. So what you'd see in this particular instance, he's 87 on the tree and it's difficult to, to figure up exactly like how much he picked up to 60 foot because he'd only made a handful of runs in the right lane. And just like any car, like his truck moved a little bit to 60 foot. So you can't say with any degree of certainty, but it looks like he's roughly 700 slow on the tree and roughly 700 fast on the racetrack. I'd say that's pretty accurate. Okay. So you could speculate on a number of potential causes for this. Like it could be something on the car, like a diaper hanging low or something like that to stay in the beams. It could have something to do with the uh, exhaust. Like I've seen that before actually at a race that we put on side exhaust headers, kind of mutilating the air enough to, to, to not allow that beam to reconnect. Um, or it could be strictly something to do with the timing system itself, right? Who knows? I and mean, we can't speculate, but that's the general idea of what's going on. And I think it's also fair to say that while I wouldn't say that this issue is common, it's certainly not unheard of. Like I, I've probably run into an issue like this, like at least a dozen times in my racing career, maybe more. Would, would you, you factor in somewhere around there yourself, Chad? I would say that's, probably spot on again um couldn't put couldn't possibly have worse timing than this but it, it's not like i say well it's it's not a common issue it's it's something that happens from time to time and it's and i've seen it happen at any facility from your ho-dunk 500 foot track because they don't have enough shutdown area to run a full eighth mile to a national event facility like there's no racetrack or timing system that's immune to this like it, it happens it just couldn't possibly happen at worst time so we we go back to this it's kb and, and and gary williams were the first pair of the quarterfinal round gary immediately comes back up the short shoot with his time slip and be like hey this is obviously not right and i and i would assume kevin takes one look at that time slip and goes okay something's obviously not right like we're probably oh, yeah. going to rerun this, right? The run's reviewed, general consensus. This isn't valid. I don't know exactly what's going on, but this isn't right. We're going to rerun. Okay, now keep in mind, the other three pairs of the quarterfinals ran with no obvious issues. We determined a winner in each of those. So we have three winners headed to the semis, one pair that needs to rerun, correct? Spot on. All right, so Kevin Brandon and Gary Williams come back around for the rerun. And for the second time, it's Kevin Brandon over Gary Williams. Sort of. Kevin's wind light comes on again. This time around, Gary is 33 on the tree in that same right lane, 300s under the dial in. Pretty easy to justify, like, okay, we have the same issue, just not quite as blatant. This time, rather than being two feet out of the stage beam, when that beam reconnected to stop the reaction timer and start the ET timer, maybe Gary was six inches out of the stage beam. Okay. But again, slow reaction time by somewhere two to three hundredths, uh, fast 60 foot by again, two to three hundredths. This one here, if that run was the first run, I don't know that there's a rerun. 
and I'm not to say that I think that this, that's not saying I think this run is legit, but we're all capable of being 30, even Gary Williams. And while it's a bit of a long shot for any super competitive car in this day and age, particularly one that has advanced to the final eight cars of the million, while it's not common for a car like that to have its best 60 foot of the day by two full hundredths of a second, it's certainly possible. And you sure. could had this run happens first, I think that Gary has a legit case. I don't know that you could rerun it. But since the more egregious one, the more obvious one is first, where he's a full, you know, seven plus hundredths, slow and react, fast and 60 foot, now everyone's antenna's up. So now it's easier to say, okay, well, that's still not right. Now, I think this one's a tougher call. And there was some consternation over this, if my understanding is correct, between oh, yeah. and Kevin, between uh, Gary, all the way around the board. In the end, the decision is, this run's not valid either. We're going to rerun for a third time. Yeah, and that took a while to get to that point, Luke. That was, that was one of the other big issues was, all right, so Randy and Kevin, they go to the to the motor mania truck and they're checking everything out and watching video and could see the light hang the the pre-stage and stage light hang a little bit after the car moves so and it took a while to get all that done so you know honest here two things from a personal standpoint i was it's past my bedtime i'm watching on motor mania tv i watched the first one like there's an obvious rerun I thought, well, I'm going to stay up and watch the rerun because I'm, I'm close with Kevin and Gary. Like I, and I wanted to win some million. <clears throat> they rerun the second time. Kevin win, Kevin's win light comes on. I'm like, cool, Kevin's down to four. And then I don't know if it was you at that point. They announced the numbers of the run. And I just looked at my wife and go, I ain't sure that's right either. I don't know if they can rerun that, but I don't think Gary was 30 and three under. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't think a, anybody had confidence in that. A couple, it's a couple minutes later that they – call them both back to the tower and i thought it's freaking one in the morning like i'll find out who won tomorrow and i went to bed and i missed all the good stuff it got better from here or better yeah it's a subjective term it got much worse from here but the story again from a podcast standpoint content we got lots more content after this it definitely provided that i think it's really interesting because i heard this from um a couple of people who were involved too that Kevin and Randy Folk retired to the Motormania trailer. It's almost like you've got instant replay. And I think, at least my perception is, that seeing that validated the position where it, it basically made Kevin okay with agreeing to a second rerun. And I, I would assume that what they're looking at is Gary's truck leaving in, re in relationship to the stage beam, the, the stage light on the tree, right? And I would assume as well some correlation of the pre-stage going out to the stage going out. Because particularly on the 700s run, like that should be really obvious that the pre-stage was out for a while before the stage light went out. And I would think it's visible on the 300s run as well. Like if you played that and then played back a, a, a quote-unquote normal run for a, a 590 car, like you almost can't discern the difference between the pre-stage and the stage going out. And when there's three plus hundredths difference in between them, which again would, would, would uh, indicate 
you know, clean, plainly identify in plain sight that stage bulb hanging, that stage beam hanging, you know, uh, I, I think that the video played a, a significant role in that. Yeah, look, I think it, it definitely told the story and, you know, KB um, might have had a little uh, heartache over we got to rerun again, but when he watched it, I think he said, yep, I mean, I see it. So I think it was very clear. So this sets the stage for rerun number two, which is the third time now that Gary Williams and Kevin Brandon have staged up beside one another in the quarterfinals of the Million Dollar Race. And, and it, like I say, at this point, I'm lost on it. How, uh, in real time, how long is this after the first time that they staged it? To to what point till they till they run the the third run? I would say it's an hour, Luke. Right. It felt like that. I don't know if it was, but boy, it felt crazy long. Okay, so on this third matchup, this is where things get even more interesting. Number one, the two drivers are allowed to change their dial-ins. Now, if you've ever been a part of a rerun, you know that that's a relative, I, at least to my knowledge, like an unprecedented decision. Typically, a rerun is just that, like we are just going to run it back. Exact same setup. Well, in this instance, I could see either decision. Like I could see Randy and the, and the million team saying, no, it's, it's a rerun. We're not changing anything. You're going in the same lanes with the same dial-ins. To the point that you just made, Jed, it's an hour later no one's going down the racetrack. Uh, like I can see the argument of saying, okay, like this is, this is a whole different scenario than the first time that you staged up here. If you guys want to change your dial in, that's fine. I get that. It's a significant advantage in this per particular situation for Kevin. A, he's made two full runs. Like he has real data where, I mean, Gary's made two runs too, but you can't make any sense of them. Right, Kevin. No, and and then and Kevin's two runs. Like he styled four fifty one. He went fifty two eight, and then I think fifty three seven, like high fifty three. And it looks like pretty much wide open. Like he can't run four fifty one. So it's a significant advantage to him, and he dials up three when they allow him to change the dial in. Like I, I think that's worth noting here, right? And if you're Gary, like I don't think you can really argue that because you're just happy to have another shot. You're happy that to be granted the rerun, right? Um, it's just it, it's it's interesting to to think back through that through each from each of their perspectives. The other big um, point to make about rerun number two, run number three, is that after two erroneous runs in the right lane, the decision was made to change that stage beam infrared for the third rerun. And keep in mind that when you do that, like you can't necessarily verify exactly that the rollout's the same as it was earlier in the day. And who knows how long this has been a problem and how significant a problem it has been. So basically we're installing a new infrared and, and we're guessing. Now it can be a very educated guess by really knowledgeable people, but we're playing a game of thousands of a second, right? Yeah. Essentially, Gary Williams is staging in a new lane, right? You don't really, you don't really know what's coming. So all of that 
<laughs> sets the table for this rerun. In which case, at which time, once they both stage, Kevin Brandon basically leaves on the top amber, like what two and a half seconds before his light would turn green. So it's G dub over KB, sort of. Both drivers immediately, like I was really shocked when I look back on the video footage of this jet at how quickly both drivers just basically quit, backed up, and seemed to be in immediate agreement, we're going to do that again. <laughs> you can't stress how immediate it was. Well, I mean, even on Kevin's end, like, I don't think that Gary ever let the trans brake release. No, he did. He did. But yeah. and he's leaving first. Like, he didn't go 20 feet. Stop. No, it was all, it, it even looked like, and Luke, I was, had already went down on the racetrack. So I really don't know what's going on. And when I see what happens there, I actually think, okay, well, they're, they were going to give Gary a hit on the tree because they changed everything. And then they're just going to stop and back up. I saw that KB left early, but when they both stopped so immediate, I said, okay, well, they were just giving, giving Gary a hit and KB was going to take a hit as well, which wasn't the case whatsoever. I don't know what happened there. Like I have not talked to Kevin about that, but even from his lane, like if that's me and I, like I say, I don't know what happened there, but if I, made some crazy mistake and double hit the trans rate button or had the car in high gear or something like that. When I immediately take off, like my first instinct is not going to be to like stop and put it in reverse. My first instinct is going to be, Oh my God, I just completely screwed up the quarterfinals of the million after all this, you know I mean? Like it would just take me a second to process that even on KB's like it was as soon as Gary stopped, KB's like, yep, let's do it again. And there was no question about it. Like it, the, the more it, I, I think we need to shed more light on, on what Gary did here. But even on Kevin's end, like it just, it blew me away to the point where the first time that I saw the video, kind of like you said, Jed, like I just assumed that whether it was a practice run or like something went crazy with the tree where they were just both like, yeah, that wasn't right. Let's, let's, let's try this again. And, it, and that doesn't seem to be, have been the case. No, it was not the case at all. And, you know, again, I, I'm thinking they give me a hit at the tree and, almost somewhat felt like KB's leave was intentional. Like he was told your lane didn't change, so you can't have a reaction time. I mean, I'm processing all this real time thinking that's, that's what happened. And obviously that was not what happened. So when I did finally hear, no, no, they were racing and, and KB did whatever he did, left it in high gear, transmitted, didn't work, whatever. Uh, they stopped and Gary backed up. And I, I immediately call that, the classiest thing I've ever seen, um, sportsmanship of the decade, whatever the century, whatever whatever you can put on it that that makes it sound as sportsmanlike and classy as it was, and it's unbelievable to me that he went through all that BS, has the opportunity to take his free shot and go to the semis, and he said no. Nah. Now, we, we both went through that and immediately processes all that, Luke, and says, I'm going to stop and back up and race and get a, you know, try to get this the right way. It was amazing to me. Now, I know Gary's a sportsman. I know Gary's a winner, and he likes to win the right way. And, and I would expect as classy a move as you can make out of him. 
that went beyond any expectation I would have, not only of Gary Williams, but of anyone. And I, I found myself, I, I found me ashamed of myself because I'm thinking, I love KB, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm thinking I do my little wheelie and I check out. And I like the scoreboard and get my ticket and get ready for the semis. 100%. And I think I speak on behalf of most racers when I say that if I had the time to sit down and think about this, I would be well enough intentioned to say, you know, Kevin watched his wind light come on twice, thought that he was going to the semis of the million. I don't really know how either of them races played out. Like, I'm not advancing like that. But by the time I would have processed that, like, it had been over. I guarantee you I'd have made that run, and I'd have felt guilty about it. But at that point, there's no way you're getting rerun number four. It's over. Yeah, get, that one was as straight up and fair as, as, it was, as it could have been. And so Gary didn't have the time to process that. Like his decision was 100% instinctual. <clears throat> and it's so incredible. And to your point, speaks to his makeup. Like, I just don't think you can overstate that. I really think it is less than 1% of competitors in that situation, regardless of how well-intentioned you are, how much you care about the person in the other lane, how much you empathize with what you've mutually been through over the course of the last hour, nobody would think to do that except Gary Williams. And one thing that I've said, <clears throat> and I, I'm, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before about Gary, is that for the <clears throat> over the course of his career, Gary doesn't ever just want to win. Like he's always, it's, it's more than that. Like he doesn't want to win ugly. He wants to win impressively. Right. And I think more importantly, like he wants to do it the right way. That's his DNA. And it, and it goes back to the day that I met him. I think uh, more accurately, more importantly in this particular scenario, he's got a wealth of experience and perspective and he's able to, to kind of put himself into Kevin's shoes here and, and just say, man, that would be the worst possible way to lose, right? And I think maybe it's even subconsciously, but in the two runs previous, obviously there's, there's erroneous readings in Gary's lane. But let's look at that in a vacuum, right? He's, what, 80 and 7 under and 30 and 3 under. Like, there's not really any way that Gary could have lost those races as long as they determined that a rerun is valid. Like there's really nothing that he could do short of hitting the, hitting the wall across the center line that would say, okay, he's out. On the flip side, on those two runs, Kevin Brandon could have lost. Like if he's red, he's out. If, he's, if he crosses the finish line first and is under, he's probably out. And I just think like on a subconscious level, like, okay, he had two chances to lose and I couldn't screw up. Like, I'm not going to let him screw up once and take it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, he, like I say, he didn't have time to think this through, but it's just so incredible the decision that he made in the moment. And from a big picture standpoint, and then when I say he didn't have time to think this through, like I'm digging way deeper now, but from a big picture standpoint, like I know that Gary and, 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 and Troy and a lot of, I'll say us, like that, that came up racing this event in particular right the, the million holds a special part spot in our hearts and specifically in in gary's heart like i mean he is the most prestigious champion of it 
And I think if it goes down the way that 99% of us do, and we just sail through and accept that wind light, maybe feel guilty about it, but like at that point, again, there's no going back. Like that race is over and Gary's in the semifinals. I just think if that happens and that's the third rerun, there's going to be a faction of people. And I'm not, I don't think that they're right in saying this, but that are saying, well, that thing is so biased because the folk family and the Williams family, like they go way back. Gary's father was the tech man at the million for years, I think was involved in this one. Like there's just, there would be so much backlash more so than there is now. And they're getting plenty of black backlash. Don't get me wrong. Like there would have been a, pretty significant segment of sportsman racing that would have felt like that whole thing was as dirty as dirty gets. Like it just wouldn't have a good feel about it. Now I'm not saying Gary thought about that and processed it in the moment, but he saved us like as a group, as a community, so much trouble by making the decision that he made. Yeah. And, and, you know, Gary is leaving behind on track and on track legacy that might not be matched when he's done. So, I think Gary appreciates what he's comp- accomplished. He understands the value of what he's accomplished and he knows he is held in very high regard. Uh, when you start talking about the greatest, not only in our sport today, but the greatest our sport has seen. And the fact that he somehow weighed all of this stuff in his mind. So immediate and obviously it was instinct, like you said, but the the fact that, that took over his instinct and stopped him to back up it shows again a level of class and sportsmanship that i only dream of being able to attain okay so let's zoom out from and i agree 100 percent. let's zoom out from the commentary let's go back to that moment in time so the third time now that gary williams and kevin brandon staged up side by side kb leaves on nothing they both go 50 feet back up, seem to mutually agree, we're going to try this again. And this all happens now in a span of like two minutes, right? So you're watching on video and we're all confused, like what just happened, right? And you see Randy Folks on the starting line and he's running back and forth from Gary to Kevin, kind of like making sure that everybody's on the same page, right? And I'm just watching all of this shake down and, and again, like more confused than anything. What, what just happened, right? And I see in the video, like Gary Williams is waving his hand repeatedly out the door of the truck when it seems like they've both agreed, we're going to try this again. And I'm like, whose attention is Gary trying to get? Like, what's wrong? What's falling off that truck? You know what I mean? Like, what does he need? (laughs) Well, come to find out, Gary was wanting one of the race directors to tell him what his reaction time was. Like, he got a clean hit at the tree on a new lane. Like, keep in mind, backtrack, this is the first run on a completely new stage stage infrared. Again, you have no idea where the rollout's set. So my understanding of this conversation is that Randy Folk or, or whoever was in his ear, I think it was Randy looking at the, at the video, said, oh, I'm not going to tell you your reaction time, right? And Gary is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I'm making this run for the fourth freaking time on a, essentially a racetrack that no one's been down you're going to tell me what my light was. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's fair. Yeah. No, don't blame him at all. They make the decision. They tell him he was negative 12. And <laughs> having some insight here, I, I spoke with Gary, right? He put some in the box prior to the, 
this particular run because like a they changed everything and b you know like nobody's been on the track in 30 minutes like i'm just going to air to the more conservative side like he's basically set up here low to mid team and he comes up 12 thou red now keep in mind this all happened in a span of 90 seconds so he's got to process this look down a delay box that presumably has as much or more delay than he has ever run in that truck anytime anywhere and decide like okay i need to put at least twelve thousand cent on top of that <laughs> okay <laughs> i just can't imagine trying to process all of this in a short period of time there is a tremendous amount of money on the line there is a tremendous amount of legacy on the line probably more so for gary than anyone at that point there is the 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 sportsmanship that he just displayed and this unity that these two will forever have together for having gone through this. There is the uncertainty of what, what is going on in this lane and how different is it from before. And now suddenly you've got this one bit of information. It seems super tight, like you need to put two hundreds in the delay box from previous rounds. And then the knowledge, because of Gary's experience, like this obviously isn't lost on him, that if this is, a rollout difference and you need if the reaction time is 200 fast then guess what the et is going to be 200 slow like that has to go somewhere right so <laughs> not only do you have to add a ton of delay like you don't have a prayer running the dialing and he's got to think about all of that in that 90 seconds and come up with a game plan for this particular round so rerun number four or rerun number three the fourth time that Kevin and Gary stage up, which again now is at, at the most two minutes after the third time that they stage, that we just spent 20 minutes talking about because it's arguably like the damnedest thing we've ever seen in racing, right? On the fourth and final matchup of Kevin Brandon and Gary Williams quarterfinal round at the million, KB lays down a pretty nice run, which is pretty freaking impressive given the circumstances. Given what just happened, what's got to be going through his mind, he's 12 dead on six. Now, remember, he dialed up 300s from the initial round, the first, first two times that these two ran. He dialed up from 451 to 454. Looks like he killed a little bit. He's down like six-ish mile an hour to go dead on six. Gary is 23 and two above. Don't know what exactly he ended up putting in the delay box. The two above is probably accurate if the lane's 200s tight. Right? That's probably about all he had. Yep. So here we are well over an hour after the original quarterfinal round and Kevin Brandon moves on to the semifinals. Whew. So that's settled. KB moves on. But now you've got three other semifinalists that have just been twiddling their thumbs watching all of this go on for the last hour. And you've got a lane, the right lane, with a new infrared that appears to be dramatically different from the last time that any of them staged in that lane. <laughs> yeah, I would say dramatically different is, uh, is very accurate. So the decision that was made by Randy and the million staff is at least to my knowledge of first, like I don't think I've ever seen or heard of this happening, but essentially the decision was made that each of the racers that, has to run the right lane in the semifinals, which is, let's be frank, they're the two racers that don't have lane choice. Because I don't care what lane you've been running, you want the left now. 
racers that have to run the right lane are going to get essentially a free shot at the tree. And as you're watching this, whether in real time or in my case on the playback, like it's just a surreal scene, right? Tom Dauber does a burnout, rolls up there. It's the semifinals of the million and essentially makes a, a time trial, but just reaction time, like just hits the tires, stops, backs up. His, score, his, his reaction time comes up on the scoreboard. Same thing with Ricky Atkins behind him. Now, I do think it's important to note here that the remaining competitors, the remaining four, requested to negotiate the split, negotiate the money, prior to being informed of who had lane choice. That's smart. Like, that's forward thinking for those guys, right? Because if you know, I'm just telling you, like, the, what I would want to do with the money, knowing that my opponent had to go down that new lane, and what I would want to do with the money, knowing I had to go down that new lane, thanks. <laughs> it is different. So having the, the collective foresight to do that, smart right even so whatever they decided to do with the money and again that's between the four of them that's the way that we always looked at this jed this is arguably if not the biggest round because just thinking of of the the collective group that's there and and several of them had been in this situation before perhaps if it's not the biggest round of their career it's on the short list and it's just pure madness it is a situation that none of us, none of them, none of us have ever been through. Like, how, do you, how could you possibly prepare yourself for this, right? So it's craziness. So Dauber's up first with his free hit at the tree. And his numbers come up similar to what Gary Williams saw on his free hit in the right lane, the lane that he had been running most of the night with presumably the same numbers in the delay box that he had throughout the day. Tom Dauber is 24 red on his free hit. I just can't, I haven't talked to Tom. Can you imagine seeing that come up on the scoreboard, backing up, looking down to the play box and going, okay, <laughs> what do I do here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, if you break down those, that's thousands. You, you want to work in that range in thousands, two to four. Right. Now you've got to put 24 in there, at least. And to the same point that, that we mentioned earlier, presumably, and the only thing you've got to go off of is seeing Gary Williams go two above on, on the previous rerun. But presumably, if it's that tight, it's got to be that slow. Like what you pick up and react, you have to lose an ET. So now not only are you debating, like, do I really put 25, 30 in the box here for the semifinals of the million? And if I believe that, um, that 464 that I've been running all day, like, is that a 66 now, a 67? Like, what, what's, what is about to happen? He makes his decision, again, in short order. Keep in mind, like, all of these competitors are processing this in minutes, if that. Stage is up beside Nick Folk. Dauber is 10, goes 466 on a 64. Now, in theory, uh, that's all he had, right? Like, if, if what we're saying rings true, that that lane is that tight and that slow, you think 466 is wide open. It looks like he's down like six-ish mile an hour. Like he killed some. So who knows what he was going. He gets there first two thou for the win. Uh, Nick was, I think, 11 and two above, like very close race, right? So Dauber moves on to the final round of the million, um, probably 90 minutes after he advanced to the semis. Right behind him, Ricky Adkins. 
gets his free shot at the tree where he is trip zip perfect. So he backs up, makes whatever adjustments he needs to make um, to square off with Kevin Brandon. On their run, Atkins is 30 and five above in a car that hadn't moved much at all. So maybe that is a combination of, remember we saw Kevin Brandon slow down three hundreds roughly over this same time period. So whether that's conditions, uh, weather conditions, track conditions, whatever. And then I think it's presumable to say that a tighter lane and a, and a decrease in rollout played a role as well. Regardless, Atkins makes what I would have to assume is by far his worst run of the day. He's 35 above. KB, solid once again. 005, shuts it off early to be four over and advances to the final. Yeah, that, that whole what you just explained, watching that play out and, and seeing that and standing behind it was as bizarre and controversial as, as it could possibly get. And, you know, I meant to ask Ricky Adkins, you know, the, the perfect, did you, had you seen what was going on, put some in? I never really got a chance to talk to him again. Cause basically it, it rained the rest of the time we were there, but um, I was very interested to know, did he come up perfect without touching it? So maybe it was a miss and he put a little in and then hit his spot and come up 30. I, you know, just the whole thing was just weird. I'm curious, like you're doing post-race interviews at this point, right? Well, just the, you know, the winner and the runner up, obviously. Yeah. What's the, what's the tone? I mean, is it, did they seem as blown away and or confused as say I was watching at home? Uh, they, the racers or the people surrounding the, the racer. I'm talking like KB and Dauber going to the final. You know, uh, at that point, from the time that they got back to me, I don't know, it, it probably, they had forgotten all of that stuff. Um, I think at that point, one realized he had just won the 25th Mickey Thompson million and obviously Dauber having been around so long and still very competitive at, at his age was uh, very humble and appreciative and thankful to have been the runner up in the 25th Mickey Thompson million. So uh, they, they seem to have put that behind them relatively quickly, Luke. Uh, in, retrospect after all of this i'll be honest like i feel like the final round itself was somewhat anticlimactic i mean ultimately we're going to claim a, a winner of the million but like nothing's going to take precedence over what we just saw kb wins the final it's over at the starting line kevin brandon perfect on the tree i don't know if that's ever happened in a million dollar race final that's pretty special in and of itself um Dauber's 20 that's pretty much the end of it uh Dauber runs dead on uh kevin takes six to be two above so perfect takes six final of the million that's pretty impressive. And like I say, just kind of gets lost in the moment because of everything else that just happened. But obviously in the end, uh, Kevin Brandon is crowned as the 25th annual million dollar race winner over Tom Dauber. Yeah. And I believe Rodney Fagan did it, uh, the year he won. I think he lit it up perfect in the final as well, but obviously that's a very rare thing to see. But, uh, Luke, you know, Kevin is, is, so respected and so loved. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think this thing will always have the quote unquote asterisk, you know, or the, the I don't know, the feeling that we never if really you, know who was supposed to win. But don't, Kevin earned that. Oh, I agree. If you don't like the term asterisk, use footnote. 
right? Like, like there's yeah. always something attached to this. Yeah, and he he earned that. I mean, he he fought through the most difficult adversity that any million dollar winner has, and he drove fantastic. I mean, he really did. Uh, there was there might have been a round where he got by with something, but pretty much those were excellent runs he was making. Car was good. His head was on straight. So I hope no one ever tries to word this to where it takes anything away from what KB accomplished because it was definitely an earned win and, and something that I think everybody was proud to see him get done. Agree 100%. KB's talent was on display, as you would expect. And to my initial point, like I think ultimately – the, the right guy won like you go back and just look at the quality of runs that he made throughout the event like he made the best runs like I, I don't think there's any debating that Kevin Brandon is a deserving champion now let's go back we've obviously provided some commentary along the way but let's go back and armchair quarterback this a little bit on the the decisions in the moment specifically from you know the race director and the, and the powers that be here at the million my first question for you, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, was that first quarterfinal matchup, Gary Williams, Kevin Brandon, was that the first sign of trouble? Or in hindsight, particularly, had this been brewing perhaps for several rounds, perhaps for several days? Well, unfortunately, Luke, no, it was not. Um, and, you know, typically, and we've talked about it on the show, uh, these things, this this problem that was so sporadic, um, you know, it could have been 5,000, it could have been 500. So unfortunately, sometimes from the promoter side, it takes a very high profile, uh, well-accomplished person to come forward and say, there's a problem. And I, I will guarantee you there's a problem. And that happened in round number three, uh, between Nick Hastings and Dave Connolly. Hastings, again, I was calling it, it might have been round two, whenever it was, I was calling it. And, you know, immediately I'm thinking, wow, man, Nick, Nick is on such a level that his old 30 whatever bulb just totally shocked me. Now, again, I see guys miss it. I see the greatest in our sport miss it, but just don't see Nick miss it. And he's 030 something. He goes under the dial and he comes back to Randy and says, Hey, you got a problem. This 60 foot, I didn't miss it. Number one. And this 60 foot is way out of whack. It's, it's fast. And my car has never produced a 60 foot like that. So they review the run and fortunately, unfortunately, according to what side you're on, he happened to be racing Dave Connolly, which as I think most know is uh, Jenny Folk's significant other. And I, I just, there was no other option. Randy, Randy for just for doing the right thing and PR and all of the stuff that you can think of that goes into a decision like that. I mean, it's his daughter's significant other. So he's got to rerun it. And they rerun it, and they get the same result. Dave wins, but Nick feels like it was a fair run. So right then, I think people started going, holy crap. They start breaking down their tickets. And I think you 
you've got some comments here, but you, you know the rest from there. Yeah, obviously that instant time, like that gives some credence, some validity perhaps to some other racers that felt like maybe I had a run that just didn't really add up, but weren't perhaps confident or assured enough of themselves to question it. Or perhaps it's close enough that you just know, like, look, I'm not going to go up here and say I couldn't have been 20 because we all know, like, that's not a valid argument. Like, you could be 20, right? Um, but at the same time, in this day and age with technology like it is, the level of racers that we have at an event like this, like, I've been in that situation where you know, like, hey, yeah, I know that I was 18 and picked up 100 to 60, and, like, cars do that and people do that, but I'm just telling you, I wasn't 18, and the car didn't run that. You know what I mean? And you, it's not sure. even enough you. Um but when something like this comes to light, you realize, okay, this wasn't an isolated incident, right? Um, and that's tough. And that's the toughest thing about something like this because it's one thing for it to, when it's seven hundredths of a second, right? It's obvious. Gary Williams' first run in the quarterfinals. But if that imperfection, that erroneous uh, time slip, it, it, if it's capable of coming up seven hundredths in one run and then three hundredths in the next, well, then who's to say that it wasn't 15,000s in round two and 6,000s on a pair in round four and 6,000s? Like, you can't ever argue that, but it can absolutely determine the outcome of the race. Like, when you look back on it in retrospect, um, it's very easy to draw the conclusion that it delegitimizes the entire event. And... I think now it's, I get a kick out of this, dude. That's why I asked, like, was there, was the quarterfinal the first uh, sign of trouble? Because I, I didn't realize that uh, there had been a previous rerun. I know now that everyone looks back and basically every racer there that was ever 30 on the tree is like, ah, in the right lane. Like, ah, I got screwed, right? <laughs> in retrospect. Now let's be very clear. Like, I think we did a pretty decent job earlier of explaining uh, at least our perception of what's going on with the with the uh, sensitive infrared. So let's be really clear here. If you were at the million and you were in the right lane and you were 30, but you 60-footed the same that you have all weekend and you ran the dial in, like, you were just 30. Like, you just messed up. Because it's not like, I don't think this is something that was every pair, every round. Like, it would have been caught before that. It's the runs where the, where the trigger gets thrown up is when you're late and correspondingly quick in ET, right? And obviously, there were some instances of that. So as I mentioned earlier, these are not, these situations are not common, but they're certainly not, not unprecedented, right? Seen it at, at every level of facility over the, the, my time in racing. It's just that it so happened to rear its head at arguably like the most inopportune round in history um let's preface this like we're armchair quarterbacking it's quite obviously not easy to be a race director to have to make this decision in this situation it's not easy at all you can't make the right call like the right call doesn't exist right with that said it's a fun exercise to look back to evaluate the decisions in the moment uh and, you know, particularly in this moment, it's the quarterfinals of the million. I think, Jed, the biggest thing that I question, and this isn't just a, a, a retrospective on my part, I question this in real time when it happened, right? 
you were announcing, whoa, Gary is in trouble, right? Uncharacteristically late. And I'm thinking like he's 40, right? And then he rings up seven under on the scoreboard and you announced he was 87 on the tree. Immediately I said, that's, that's not right. And, I, and the next pair is starting to burn out. And I'm looking at the screen going, no, 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 you stop the race. Like that, you, you cannot send another pair. You stop right now and figure out what the hell's going on. Like you don't, you've delegitimized one pair. You can't delegitimize the entire round. And that's one thing I think should have happened. Like I don't, thankfully they, they ran the other three quarterfinal pairs and it, everything seemed legit. Like you didn't have another problem. But if you are basically committed to rerunning the first pair, why are we running the other three? And I don't know that that changes anything. I just thought in the moment, like, I think that's the wrong call, right? Easy to say in hindsight, but again, it's something that I picked up on watching. So I would think the powers that be could be looking over that in the tower and go, whoa, 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 let's, let's stop back up and evaluate this just for a second. The only recent comparison that I've got on this, and I hate to even use this to some extent because I feel like we've been very pro-fling, right? Um, and this is, this is an example, and it's not apples to apples. And I don't mean to, like I say, Randy's in a really, really difficult spot here. And I don't mean to say like, oh my God, he fumbled this. Because I think by and large, like he's in a no-win situation, right? But the one example that I'll share at uh, Bristol at the Spring Fling Million, me and Mark Kelly, I, I know this from personal experience, we are the last pair of the new entry time run. So this is not an elimination round. This is prior to first round of the million. And on our time trial, as I staged, Mark's pre-stage light went out. Now, I can't see him, so I'm just assuming like the trans brake failed. And the tree dropped, and I didn't feel like it distracted me, so I went ahead and made my run. Well, I look up, and Mark's like 11 on the tree. I thought, well, that's weird, deep. Like, that's impressive, right? And then I get the ticket, and like his 60 foot is it corresponds to what the ET was. And I'm like, well, he wasn't even in deep, right? So I thought, well, that's why on earth would the, would the, like that would be really distracting in eliminations, right? Your pre-stage bulb goes out or your opponent's pre-stage bulb goes out. Like that's something that you need to look at before first round of the million, right? Well, they stopped the race. Like nothing went down the track for an hour. And they're on the phone with Bob Brockermeyer, to my understanding. Like what just happened? How do we fix it? And I just think that's the right play there. It's just to stop and be like, okay, we have a problem. Let's admit that first. And let's address what's, this is a bad situation, but what's the best thing that we can do right now? And keep in mind, that wasn't a freaking time trial. Like there was no reason for anyone to be paying attention. And they were just on it. Like, so that's the one thing that I questioned in, in immediate. Like, well, why are we continuing on with this race when there's something obviously wrong, right? And then I think we could armchair this and have a debate, Jed. Okay, this comes up and Gary's 80 and seven under. Should there be a rerun? Any thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely should have been a rerun. Um, typically, and, and I don't want to sound hypocritical because if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll remember there was a similar issue at the U S nationals in 2019. And my take was no, like you, you can't rerun that. 
Now, it's different on a couple of levels. Number one, you're at the U.S. Nationals in Supergas, where there's just there's more variables. Like there's more that can affect your 60 foot time, right? Wide open bracket car move 700 to 60 foot, unheard of, right? Throttle stop, like there's just the stop has to close, the car has to shift. Like there's a lot of variables there that could conceivably manipulate 60 foot time, right? And it's the U.S. Nationals. Like nobody's been on the track in a day, right? This is back to back. It's wide open. Like it's pretty cut and dry. And but the but the reason or the 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 argument for saying nope, no reruns. Like it is what it is, is because when you admit that it's erroneous, then you destroy the credibility not just of that round but of the entire event. Now in this situation, there's probably no way around that. Like he's seventy and seven hundred. Like it's obvious right so even if you don't rerun i think the credibility of the event at that point is, is destroyed the, the, i shouldn't say the credibility the legitimacy of the outcome is destroyed right yeah definitely questionable i think you could also make the argument and i and it's my understanding that randy at least explored this that like look yes we have had an isolated incident but there have not been a ton of issues that we are aware of in the right lane is it possible that this erroneous run, and then particularly after we have two erroneous runs, is it possible that this is unique to Gary's vehicle? Whether that's the exhaust, potentially something hanging down, which doesn't appear to be the case, like that's easily checked out. Like, is it possible like this only shows up when you run and when you run in this lane? And if that's the case, is that worthy of a rerun? Like I could, I think ultimately the rerun's the only decision, but I could understand arguments to the contrary. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, everything's questionable, really, at this point. When you, especially if you've run the right lane, everybody that ran it, looking at your tickets, and I'll be totally transparent. I'm included, and you know, it's there's questionable here and there. I had one obvious one that shame on me. I didn't really review it very well and and pick up that there was an issue. But I'm the announcer. I'm not getting a rerun, so. It just is what it is, really, to me. But when you see what happened there, it was fortunate. It's very fortunate, really. It's unfortunate because it marred the the entire quarterfinal zone. But it is very fortunate that the numbers were so high that it caused a reaction. Right or wrong, whether anyone agrees with or disagrees, it caused a reaction, and they righted the ship the best way they could so you know to me in retrospect it was um it was a good thing that it happened i guess the way it did maybe not as many times as it did but it was a good thing it happened the way it did yeah i guess my argument here is and i'm not saying it's the right thing to do i think randy could have easily stood on his high horse and said we don't have a problem this obviously this run looks bogus but it's um, a one-off it's something unique to your truck like sorry you know what I mean like that's a bad time for something like that to happen but I've got to stand behind my equipment my racetrack my timing system right and if you make that call I don't think anyone's any happier about it but to some extent you 
I don't think you, you, you maintain necessarily the legitimacy of the event, but you stand true to saying like, no, I don't, I don't think that we have a problem. And that kind of closes the door to anyone else coming to you and saying, what, well, you know, I had this happen second round, you know? So like, I could see both sides of that. Obviously it's, it's a no win situation. Once the decision to rerun is made, the problem persists in on rerun number two. Now what do you do, right? As the, as the race director, like the decision's made to change the infrared in the right lane. Could we question that decision? Another really tough call. And this is one, I think this decision gets easier had you stopped the race right after Gary and Kevin run. Because now you analyze the situation, you get the rollout wheel out, whatever, you decide to do whatever it is that you do. But now you make three more runs, three, three more pairs down the track, and Gary and Kevin come back at the back. So you're basically making four runs in unison. If you get three consecutive runs in the right lane that all make sense, and Gary's doesn't, then it's easier to say, this is something unique to Gary's car, right? Oh. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Like, I, I understand the thought process behind changing the infrared. Like, it's a really tough call because, again, when you do it, you invalidate any information that anyone's got from the right lane throughout the day. But at that point, is any information that anyone's got from the right lane that day any good? <laughs> that, will, that question will remain for the rest of time, Luke. Absolutely. So then, as you go into the semifinals, the decisions made to, to basically give the right lane cars the free hit at the tree. Is that a good decision? Like it's odd. It's, it's hell odd, unprecedented to, to my knowledge, but it's a justifiable decision. I would also make the argument, like if you're going to commit to that, why don't you just give them a full time trial? Because if there's a rollout difference, it affects ET too. Right. So you're, you're kind of guessing at that based on react. You know, I, I, I could see saying, okay, it is what it is. Just go race. I can see them doing what they did. Okay, everybody gets a free shot at the tree. I could see them giving a whole time trial. Like, I don't know what the right answer is there. It's just interesting to go back and, and kind of rehash. Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. Again, I feel like they did the best they could in I, the situation I, they were in. But The goal of this exercise on, on, on my behalf is to, to create some empathy toward Randy because all of these thoughts have to go through your mind. And none of them's the good call. Like you, there are no good calls available. Um, I think the the other another option that had crossed my mind. What about just stopping me? Like, okay, we have a problem. The forecast for tomorrow looks good. It's getting late. Like, we're gonna look into this. We're gonna fix it. And perhaps we run the first round of tomorrow's fifty, where everybody gets a shot down the track. We verify that everything's good, and then we're gonna come back and run the semifinal round where everybody's on the level, right? Like, I would have been in favor of that at the moment. In retrospect, that wasn't going to work because it rained the next day, right? Yeah. So, and, and perhaps the forecast was such that that didn't seem like an option. Yeah. Uh, to, be, to be clear, too, one thing that Randy's been very consistent about over the, the history of the million is the desire to complete the million in one day, to never split it up. And that's something that he remained true to in this instance. Yeah, that's definitely been something that, that they are passionate about, getting it wrapped up. And as difficult as it was, um, I think there could have been other decisions made. Again, probably the weather, that, and actually that weather was showing to arrive 
just in a few hours. So wow. even getting the next day started was not, did not look like an option. Gotcha. Um, as it turns out, it might've been an option. You might could have squeezed that in before the rain got there, but I'm not sure had they stopped right there that the, the 25th Mickey Thompson million ever gets completed. Right. Which would just be even more bizarre. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom line. Uh, it's obviously a no win situation. And the bottom line of this, like we can speculate all that we want. The only people who need an explanation and who have a right to be upset are the four semifinalists and Gary Williams. And to my, the best of my knowledge, the best of my understanding, they mutually agreed to the terms and they're all fine with it. Like nobody lost sleep over this. And if that's the case, like it's an awful situation, but if those five guys are good with it, then I have to think I have to give Randy and the crew credit for an awful situation that I think it was handled about as well as possibly could be. If those five guys are good with it, I don't, who are we to, to come back and say this should have been done differently? Yeah, I agree. Well said. I think everyone accepted it. I think everyone felt like it was as right as it could be given all of the difficult circumstances and challenges they face. So um, in the end, it looks like Randy and, and his team did the best they could possibly do. All right. Two things I want to touch on. The first, uh, big picture of this. Second, the future of the million dollar race. Big picture. This sucks, right? This sucks for everybody. Everybody, everybody in sports and racing, like this was, this was awful, right? This is the hard part now, but who's to blame? I think, and Jed, I'll let you weigh in on this as well. It's obvious now seeing the feedback from this event, mostly from people who were there, some from bystanders, but both the staff of the million and the staff of Montgomery Motorsports Park are perhaps rightfully, but are absolutely being crucified for this entire situation, right? And this absolutely bizarre finish to the event. I will say two things that perhaps sound contradictory, that sound mutually exclusive, but I will say them in the same breath and believe both of them. I believe that both parties involved deserve some of the criticism that they're getting. And I'll also say that I feel bad, like terrible, for the Folk family and for Jim Howard and everyone at Montgomery Motorsports Park. Like this is a bad situation that obviously no one wanted. And I think you could easily argue that no one deserved, right? More on that shortly. Specific to the million dollar race, the OG million. It has been one bizarre situation after another. And we've discussed this before, like going back to 2010, when we moved the event in like literally 12 hours time from Indianapolis Raceway Park to Muncie Dragway, right? Like the whole venue changes. <laughs> that was bizarre. I was part of that. To 2018, which I thought was the wildest podcast that we would ever record, talking about Corey Galitti's uh, crash in the process of winning at 12 cars, the subsequent decision that that the broken car rule applies, allowing Corey to get into another car, finish the race, and then Corey goes on to the final, right? Just absolutely bizarre. And now this. And when you stack those on top of one another, you go, man, there's some wild stuff that goes on at the million, right? Uh, 
And I think it's fair to draw one of two conclusions. Either the event promoters, officials, uh, etc., are just cursed, right? Like odd stuff happens at the million. And let's be honest, some odd stuff has happened at the million that you couldn't possibly plan for. I think you could also argue that a lack of preparation lingers around the event from either the promoters, the racetrack, perhaps both. I think you could make either argument there. And I will leave that to you to decide for yourself. Well, Luke, when you look at what you've listed as these bizarre moments, uh, each of them could be um, a direct result of the facility that you've attended. You know, the Muncie thing, obviously, that, that disagreement within HRA and the licensing and all the things that happen at Indy and then they move it. So, you know, an issue with them and the people at the facility. Uh, Galitti, obviously, he is ultimately responsible for that uh, incident, but, you know, could be a product of everything being a little bit uh, iffy on the far end. Again, not insinuating that or saying that's the case, but could be uh, forced a difficult decision there. And then, of course, this with the timing system. So, you know, I, I, I definitely feel like having a, a, a back backdoor view or I guess a behind the scenes view of this, I, I think the preparation is there from the promotion standpoint. And I don't, I don't want to point fingers at facilities and, and track operators, but I, this, this could have been avoided. This could have been avoided, and that's what makes it so difficult to accept. You know, was it one of those things that happened in time systems? Yeah. Had, once it happened, did we have people saying, well, I've been saying that was been going on here for quite some time, and nobody's fixed it. So that was happening. People were saying that scoreboards didn't work properly, and I'm not trying to tear down Montgomery and, and Jim Howard, but I feel like some things handicapped them from being able to correct some issues. Um, Brock Meyer told him he couldn't travel because of COVID. Somebody said they saw him in Dallas. I don't know what the actual results are to that. What really happened, but. You know, I think they reached out and tried to make sure they were as prepared as they could and just circumstances kept that from happening. So just a very unfortunate deal. But I, I feel like this was the, the bigger issue was on the facility side as opposed to the promoter side. All right. Spanning out again, let's think and talk a little bit because there's rumblings everywhere. The future of the million dollar race. All indications are that this event will not return to Montgomery in 2021, which if we're going to be completely transparent, longtime listeners know this is something that I, and I would say we have, have basically called for, for years. Like I just, I feel like that event had outgrown the Montgomery facility years ago as it was, you know, much less issues like this. Now there is some speculation as to where, the million will go next. And I'm not reporting this by any stretch of the imagination. I, I assume most of our listeners have heard the same things that I've heard. Um, the, the favorite uh, seemingly to get next year's million is South Georgia, South Georgia Motorsports Park, which makes sense geographically. Like it's not really that far from Montgomery as the crow flies, right? 
That seems to be the favorite. I've heard rumors that Beach Bend Park and Bowling Green is also in the running. Um, I don't know where it ends up. I like both of those facilities. It's been a, it's been a minute since I've been down to South Georgia, but class facility top to bottom. And if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that Bowling Green is my favorite place in the world. Like I love racing there, right? So, um, and from a very selfish standpoint, I would like the million to be three hours from home. I vote Bowling Green, right? But uh, my point is I like both of those places. And I firmly believe if you've, if you've been to the three facilities, I think anyone would agree that either one would be a pretty significant upgrade from Montgomery. And yet, at the same, in the same breath, I'll say that if you're going to have a mega race, which the million has by and large turned into, where I'm talking 500 plus cars, not entries, cars, right? Which the million didn't necessarily have this year. There's double entries, but maybe probably 350, 400 cars on the ground. It has had 500 cars on the ground in the past. If it grows, returns to that. I'm not sure that either of those facilities are big enough to comfortably house the event. Because when you get to a, a race of that magnitude with the, the rigs involved in this day and age, let's be honest, like there is a short list of facilities that really comfortably hold that. And most of them are taken by other big events. You know, the Martin, Michigan and Las Vegas are the two that come to mind. Like it seems seemingly unlimited number of cars that you could comfortably fit in there. Topeka, Kansas is another. If Route 66 Raceway in Joliet ever reopens, <laughs> that would be another. It's big enough. And then I think the, the Mecca, um, I don't think it will ever return there. I don't, and I don't know that any big bracket race would work there. But the, the logical place to house a major event is obviously Indy. I mean, they do it every year with 900 plus entries at the U.S. Nationals, and it's not it's not ridiculously packed. Yeah, all those places would definitely be good locations. I, you know, I think everyone had their level of concern this year with this being the last of the millions and it, this unprecedented run of million dollar races back to back to back, for lack of a, a better way of saying it. Um, but look, they had 509 on their biggest day. I think, I think you could announce you're going to have the million in my backyard next year, and they get a monster crowd. So uh, they're coming. It's a and and again, as I said on the on an earlier podcast, this is the race that we've all dreamed of winning for two and a half decades. It holds a special place in our heart. Whether it's going to be your biggest payday or any of that, winning this comes along with as much prestige and notoriety as any event on the schedule it's the og and and for two and a half decades we've dreamed of, of having our name on that list so it's going to be successful but they need to make sure they put every everything in place to to keep it that way and and make sure the racers are you know enjoying their experience i think uh, wherever the 2020, 2021, that's so hard to say, 2021 million, wherever that event is held, whether it's South Georgia, Bowling Green, somewhere else, right? Regardless of where it is, that race is going to be a defining moment for the million dollar race brand. Because if that goes smoothly, everyone will look back on this and go, you know, the thing at Montgomery had just run its course. It didn't work. And the million will go on and thrive. 
if next year's event, for whatever reason, whether it's a reason that we deem as being in their control or out of their control, if it doesn't go so smoothly, right, if there are problems next year, then it becomes an indictment on the event itself because you've got one common denominator. The race changes locations, but the, the bleep still hits the fan, like something unprecedented happens and it just feels like a mess. Time will tell. I think 2021 is a big year for the Folk family. Yep, I would agree with that. It's it's definitely uh, if they make some kind of transition to another facility. And again, I, I heard the same things you heard. Um, it, it does look like that is a very likely possibility. Um, it's not going to be just some easy transition to where you go to a quote unquote better place or nicer place and it just falls into place. There's a lot of things with that relationship where they've been there since 2011 that are just understood. A lot of bases that you don't have to cover necessarily um, because, yeah, we know this is going to be done like this, this is done. When you go to a new place, every one of those uh, important factors have to be addressed to make sure everyone's on the same page and, and things are getting done the way that, you know, the racers expect and the promoters expect. So, that transition is going to be difficult if they make it, regardless of the quality of the facility. And, and you know, I, I hope and I know that Jenny and Randy and their staff and their circle will, will handle all that. But it is going to create a lot more work and, and focus for them. Yeah, you're, that's actually a really good point, Jed, that I hadn't completely thought about. And, and the average racer probably has no idea, couldn't possibly respect the amount of work, the amount of planning, the amount of foresight that goes on, that goes into putting on, you know, like an event like you or I are used to putting on that is nothing in magnitude compared to an event like the Million Dollar Race. Like that is a big hurdle um, that is going to take a lot of, a lot of meetings, a lot of phone conversations, a lot of uh, sharing of information. Like there's a lot of T's to, to cross and a lot of I's to dot there. Uh, that's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a hurdle for sure. Yeah, no doubt. I can answer a lot of questions about my event without having to ask because of that comfort level with who I'm there with. And when you lose that, if I were to go to a new place, oh my goodness, yeah. couldn't imagine it. All right. I know that we've seemingly analyzed this in every depth. I've got one more exercise for you, Jed, and I didn't really share this pre-show. So I don't expect you, we're not going to go back and forth. I don't expect you to, to have a list ready because I think our lists would mirror each other. We might just have things in different order. The exercise that I want to go through, again, from the Million Dollar Race, is given this whole situation, who were the biggest losers? And when I say biggest losers, let me qualify that. Like, who who are the individuals that were most ill-affected by this and will be most ill-affected by this whole situation? Basically, in some instances, like, who are the people that you feel the worst for having watched all this happen? Okay, I've got, a, I've got a top five, and then I had to expand it to six. I'll run through that. I'll let you kind of give commentary as we go, okay? Got it. All right. So number six, the guy that I feel like came out on the losing end of this uh, as much as anyone. And again, he's number six. It's KB. And that sounds crazy because he won the freaking race, right? But I feel like even no one won here. No one won here because his crowning achievement 
it's it's forever got that footnote that we talked about before it's on some level tainted now he's not at the top of my power rankings here because let's face it he did win and he got paid so don't feel that bad for kb <laughs> the list yeah i would agree with that I, I i haven't scrolled down to look i don't want to cheat and look ahead so um just what where i think this is headed i would say that that he deserves to be on the list, but certainly um, in in the spots you've got him in. All right, number five, biggest loser. We just talked about uh, him and his facility to some extent. It's Jim Howard and the staff at Montgomery Motorsports Park. You could make the argument to put him higher on here. I put him fifth because, again, like we've talked about, if you're going to place blame here, they probably get the lion's share. Right. This is something that probably could have been avoided. And I think ultimately the, a lot of it at least falls on their shoulders. However, it's not like they came into this event thinking they had a problem. You would never come into this event thinking that problem. No one wanted this to happen. This is the biggest event of the year, arguably the biggest event in, in sports and drag racing, unquestionably the biggest event of the year for Montgomery Motorsports Park. And then you tie into that too, like, I've never talked to Jim Howard about this specifically, but he's got to have an emotional investment in the million, right? It's, it's his brother's race. And it, it, it is the signature event, has been the signature event in big dollar bracket racing for 25 years. Jim's got to take a lot of pride in that and an immense amount of pride in being, it continuing to be a part of it, right? So there, he, he would never want to do anything to shed a bad light on that event. And then I just think like big picture, it makes me think about Jim and like just the, the unfairness of his kind of situation from day one, because like he was kind of thrust into that position, obviously by his own volition, like this is something that he wanted to do. But in this world, he's always living up to big brother, right? It's, he's always, he's, he's never going to make a name for himself. He's always going to be George Howard's brother. And you're never going to live up to that. Like that man was larger than life when he was alive. And I think his legacy has only grown in the years that he stepped away from the sport and has since passed. And like, I try to draw a parallel to that. And I think, and what's it going to be like for like Peter Biondo's boy, Severio, if and when he starts racing, like what's the burden of expectation going to be on him? You're the son of arguably the greatest to ever do it. Like people are just going to expect you to be the next Pete. And that's not fair to Severio, right? I think it's, you could argue it's even harder for Jim because if that day comes and Severio Biondo takes the wheel, like not to say in, at, the, at the rate that Pete's going, like he'll probably win a world championship that year, right? Like who's going who's gonna to say that he's ever going to fall off the cliff? But it's likely that we're two decades removed from Pete's heyday, right? That dominance. With Jim taking over for George, like that transition, it was five years. You know what I mean? Like there was never an opportunity to, to have that, that go away. Like and then, so, so I, I feel for him on a, on a personal level there. And then just like, if you look at this outside of the span of this week, because right now this seems like a big deal for everyone involved. I think it's very safe to say that this has, this whole incident, this whole sequence has longer ranging impacts for Montgomery Motorsports Park than anyone else on this list. 
like when you have a problem with this, particularly on this, a problem like this, timing system related problem like this, particularly on this biggest stage, it's just a stigma that I don't care if they replaced everything and never have another issue. That's a stigma that's going to stick with that facility for years. Like I've just seen it too often in the past. People are going to be afraid to race at Montgomery for fear of something like this. And let's be honest, outside of this event, their bracket program, their big dollar races, like all of that had been trending in the wrong direction anyway. That's not to say that the facility can't stay afloat. Like there are other ways to make money with the racetrack. I just think it's going to be a really tough road to hoe in this particular market going forward. Yeah, like uh, that really doesn't need any any comments from me. You're you're spot on with that. And Montgomery is staying alive outside of bracket racing. Unfortunately for them, the things that keep them alive are really rough on your facility. The type of events that are that are keeping them afloat are very difficult on your facility it's a it's a crowd that's not very respectful of the opportunity to to be at a, a good facility and and be at a good race if you know what i mean so um you know i, I think they they have a fair amount of uh, repair and cleanup after some of these events and it just probably hasn't gotten done to the level that it needs to be done and they they run they make good money on events where nobody knows or cares what time they run. All they want to do is get to the finish line first. Just need my wind light. I really don't care what I ran. You ain't even got to tell me. So, and I definitely don't want anybody else to know. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate situation for them. What, what's kept them around and allowed the million to still have a place to go there has also been pretty detrimental to, to their ability to, you know, host a world-class event. That's right, so number six was KB. Number five, Jim Howard. Number four, I'll say the collection of Tom Dauber, Nick Folk, Ricky Atkins. Like, for similar reasons to KB, like, it's hard to feel too bad for those guys. They all got paid, right? They all advanced the semifinals of the million-dollar race. But let's be honest. Like I said this earlier, this is one of, if not the single biggest round of your career and it's just a mess. Like it's, if you're, it's a complete mystery what's about to happen and, and probably a mystery as to what just happened. Like it's just such an unprecedented situation. Uh, the, the money's nice. The, the acknowledgement for getting to that point in that event is, is awesome. But like you just can't help but think of what might have been probably what should have been, you know, from, from that moment. So all those guys make the list of number four. Yep. I agree with that as well. Um, Dauber, one of the, the most likable guys out there. But, you know, and Ricky Atkins, having been a former finalist before, um, actually that thing was somewhat lining up for a, a rematch of finalists, you know, if G-Dub and, and Ricky had made the final. But um, Nick is the one that I single out of that group because, you know, he's been the one final in a million just a few weeks ago and was – really on track to to do that again he he was really about to accomplish something very special and just his style of car and you know everything sitting around and cars not going down the track probably affected his car more than any and i think it it got him behind there a couple of hun so i probably feel the worst for nick 
Yeah, that's fair. And next one, I I meant to to touch base with him and confirm that I'm correct here. Obviously, he was runner up at Bristol a couple of weeks prior. Uh, I believe again, I, I may I may be misspoken here. I believe this was his third semifinal appearance at the OG Million, and he's yet to make a final. Oh my goodness, even worse. Right, number three on my list, Randy Folk and the entire Folk family, basically everyone involved with the production of the Million, and. Again, you could make the argument that there is some blame for this. Like this probably could have been avoided. And there's some blame that falls directly on their shoulders. I will say this. I feel as though, and I think we touched on this a little bit, Jed, last week. I feel like Randy and that staff, Randy, Jenny, Jason, the entire staff, has made a real effort in recent years to improve their race. And, and some of that is probably... Uh, a reflection of competition, right? There are other millions now, like it's time to sharpen the pencil, but that's not been lost on them. Like they've, they have really worked and you can see the work that they've put in on several fronts to make this race better, whether that's first to pay out, whether that's just in, and I feel like they've always done a good job of making everyone feel at home, you know, and you get free meals throughout the event. Like they, they kind of set the trend there, but just every little thing you see them, making things not resting on their laurels, not resting on the laurels of a, of a 24 years of success, continuing to find innovative ways to make the race better, to make the race richer, to make the race more prestigious, to make the race more fun. And this is a situation that renders all of that useless. Like no one's talking about any of the good stuff that they did because everybody's just going to be focused on what happened from eight cars on. And I think that's a shame. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't deserve their share of criticism, but I just, I feel like we're overlooking all the good that was done. And basically a year plus worth of, of good work is thrown out the window over something that happened in a few seconds that, uh, you know, I mean, I just hate it for everybody. Yeah, I definitely hate it for them. Obviously been very close to them, having worked for them since 2011, Luke. And it was painful. It was painful to watch. Uh, I could see their efforts trying so hard to to figure things out and make sure they, you know, gave the racers exactly what they came for. And so many circumstances kept that from happening. Um, so they definitely got a black eye here, but they'll recover. There's no doubt in my mind they're going to recover. Um, Jenny and Randy and their team you know, they work hard. They are committed to giving the racers a great experience. And, you know, unfortunately for them, it's been a challenging thing to try to figure out if you should stay there. They, they've had issues here and there over the years. And I think you're going to have that anytime you, you at a facility for quite some time. But, you know, it, you still had to live by if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That mentality. And, you know, for the last several years, you get to 500, 600, almost 700 cars. Things are going well. And there's some challenges within putting on the event, but, you know, you'd leave there every year with a crack or two, a new crack, a new bend, but it wasn't broken. I think it finally broke. And now they get the opportunity. I, I won't call it a challenge. I'm going to say they get the opportunity to show what they're really made of and repair this and put on a great event like they know how. So I'm a hundred percent confident that's going to happen. It's uh, it's ironic when I think back to it and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn sharing this. Uh, I actually had a, a conversation with Randy at uh, the great American million. We were, we were 
parked side by side, talked quite a bit throughout the week. And uh, he basically shared, he's, he, he said, Luke, I know, I know you're not, uh, or I know that you've, you've said, and I've told him just the same as we've recorded here on the podcast, that I, I feel like it's run its course at Montgomery. This was two weeks prior to the million now. He's, he's telling me this. And he says, and I've gotten that a lot. And we've had discussions along those lines. But man, it's hard to get away from something that works. Like to your point exactly. Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, if that was a difficult conversation, if that was a difficult decision on their part the last few years, um, it's probably made a little bit easier now. And to your point, um, and to my point earlier, uh, 2021 is going to be a big year for them. Like a lot, the, the, the reputation of this race hinges, I think more so on what happens next than what just happened. And I like the way you put that. It, it's an opportunity for them. All right. So number two on my list of the biggest losers <laughs> from this wild and wacky million dollar race. This is us, all of us as fans of sportsman drag racers, because we were robbed of an incredible finish. Like at, at, at eight cars remaining in the million, I don't think you could script a much better potential storyline. Okay. You've got Gary Williams, the most illustrious winner of the event, the most illustrious winner in big dollar bracket racing history. And we, you touched on this just a little bit earlier, Jed, if Gary wins this event, I think we talk about him differently. A, he wins it in a door car, okay? He wins it for the third time, the first time in a door car. This is a, a racer that has been lauded throughout his career, rightfully so, but the vast majority of his big dollar wins have come in a rear engine dragster. Like, he's a dragster guy. That's the way we view Gary Williams. You and I know he's capable of winning in a shopping cart. If he wins the million in a pickup truck for the third time, it's just, it's, it's people look at that differently. And I really think if he wins that race, given the prestige of it for a third time in 25 years behind the wheel of a door car. Like I think the conversation around Gary begins to change. And I think where we've always mentioned Scotty Richardson and Peter Biondo in one breath period stop. They're a level above everybody else. If Gary wins that race, I think we begin to transition and that's like three names all in one that we mentioned at the very pinnacle all time of the sport now so you've got gary right in at eight cars in addition you've got the guy who is in the midst of the best season ever in big dollar bracket racing hunter Patton's still in the race at eight right you've got two well-known extremely well-respected racers who have been close to winning on this stage in the past and are striving to check off that million dollar race win from their bucket list. Nick Folk, Kevin Brandon. Okay. That's four of the biggest names in the sport. Gary Williams, Hunter Patton, Nick Folk, Kevin Brandon. You've got two hungry, talented youngsters and not like the household name kids, not the Gage Birch. You've got Hayden Smith and Tucker Cancelar who are obviously worthy of being on that stage but are not you know, like nationally recognized names. They're there with something to prove. You've got the old guard in Tom Dauber, who would have been a favorite to win the million dollar race in like the mid eighties, had there been a million dollar race in the mid eighties. And he'd have been a favorite to win it every year since seemingly, had there been such a thing. And Dauber, you've got competing at, at 
the highest of levels at a pretty advanced age, right? You've got Ricky Adkins who falls somewhere between Gary Williams and Tom Dauber on the experience scale and probably on the accomplishment scale to some extent. Uh, multi-time IHRA world champion, to your point earlier, former million dollar race finalist. You've got these eight guys. You've got dragsters, you've got door cars, you've got competitors from every age group from, I think, uh, Tucker and Hayden, if they're 20, they're barely 20. And you got racers, you, uh, racers, KB and Nick are in their 30s. Gary's in his 40s. I think Ricky's, if he's not in his 50s, he's pushing it. Dauber's in his 60s. Like, everybody's got someone to root for. It's got everything that you want for this epic finish. Like, it's going to be a great story no matter what, whatever angle you want to come at it from. And then it all just falls apart. It all gets overshadowed by this. Like, I just feel like as fans of the sport, we were robbed from an epic finish to the million. Luke, we'll call that Biggest Loser 2A, and I would like to selfishly go on the list as 2B. It, nope. was, it was my final opportunity to call a round at the million, a race I love. And, and that's uh, <laughs> What's that? And that's the way you had to go out. Yeah, and, and you know, the first pair out, and it's just like, whoa, and that's all anybody can think about. Like, is, is, is this happening to the next pair, the next pair? And, you know, it's just you couldn't enjoy it. And then, obviously, the, what happened afterward couldn't enjoy. And then you're trying to figure out what you say to the people listening. And it was as uncomfortable a situation as I've been in on the microphone, and, and I was – really jacked and pumped about going up and and it being you know my last one so it was uh it sucked i mean there's no other way to put it it absolutely sucked i'm glad you brought that up because i wanted to ask you like as the announcing team how awkward was that because you're trying to walk the line of entertaining explaining to the viewer to the to the whether it's live at the racetrack on Motor Manor TV, explaining what is going on when you probably don't completely know what's going on. You can't speak out of turn because obviously you're not making the decisions, right? You're trying to relay the decisions, but it's all happening in real time so quickly. And obviously you've got to you're being paid to protect the brand, so to speak. So you're not speaking out of turn, you're certainly not going to be critical of any decisions. And I can only imagine how how hectic, how how difficult that moment had to be for all of you guys on the mic. Yeah, it was extremely difficult. Um, you know, I, I was down on the racetrack for the semis and the finals, so I couldn't hear what was being said on the microphone. But I'm sure explaining the 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 time, the um, reaction time hits and all that was extremely difficult. I haven't went back and listened, um, but you know, I was not getting that while I was on the mic. I was not getting that information. I had no idea what was going on, no idea what they were deciding to do. And I actually, it got to the point where I just left the, you know, after they ran the second time, well, I just, you know, I came out and just told them, look, whatever they decide, I guess you guys figure out how to explain it. I'm going down the racetrack because it was just silence. Didn't know what to say. And it it was going on and on and on. You there was I mean, who knows how to talk about that? So very difficult situation from the announcer standpoint and you know, here I was really excited and emotional 
about it being my last one. Of course, nobody knew that at the time, uh, but I wanted a, you know, a good clean lap with, with all of that stuff in there that you put in number two and felt like, you know, and it wasn't anyone's fault, but I felt like I was robbed of it. I felt like I was robbed of going out the right way. So I was pretty upset about that, but you know, again, I probably wasn't even close to what the guys felt that were actually on the track. So try not to have a pity party there, but it, it definitely was not fun at all. Not like I anticipated. All right. The number one biggest loser, the guy that I think got the shortest end of the stick, all of this. Uh, and it will come as no surprise. It's Gary Williams. And the way that Gary handled this, I mean, we, t- we, we spent some time on it earlier. I don't want to harp on it. I'm singing his praises. Like it commands respect on, on every aspect, not only the way he handled it in the moment, the way he's handled it since. And like I say, I talked to Gary and he's like, yeah, you know, stuff happens. Like it was an awkward situation, but it is what it is. And I just, I don't think, I don't think many of us would, would look at it quite like he has because let's, let's face it by the time that he has a quote unquote shot to win this, right. Which would be the third run that, that he and KB matched up. Like when the, when the tiny system is going to give him a quote unquote fair shake, his odds were not good. Right. At that point, KB had two runs down the track to get data was allowed to dial up accordingly. Gary hasn't gotten significant data from either run. Like doesn't really know where he's at. He's got a brand new lane, <laughs> a brand new infrared. Have any idea where the rollout is. And I don't want to say like singling out Gary's strong suit because that wouldn't be fair to him. Like he's at the top of the list at any, anything that happens on a racetrack. It's not like he's a great finish line driver and not a great starting line racer. Like he's got the entire package, but one of his biggest attributes is being able to drive the lights out of the finish line. So in a situation where you don't really have any idea what you can go, like I like Gary's odds better than most, but he's in a situation where he doesn't really have any idea what he can go. And he's given up 40 plus mile an hour. <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> if that's a heads up race, like I, I, I wouldn't say that I like Gary's chances given everything that's worked against him, but like I ain't betting against the guy, but when you hamstring him in every way that you can and then say, Oh, by the way, like um, you got to drive what most of us would, would attest to being the most difficult situation at the finish line when you're giving up that much speed. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Tough spot. Right. And I said at the open that, KB is the right winner and I'll stand by that but you can go back and look at the incremental times from their first matchup and you're playing devil's advocate here because it's unclear like if you're going to try to make sense of that time slip you have to essentially pick a number and to some extent you're picking a number out of thin air that you think the the infrared hung for this amount of time right but you can go back and base that off of Gary's previous 60 foots. Now he'd been in that lane for limited runs. So there's a limited sample size and his truck had, had varied um, a fair amount to 60 foot to that point. So if you pick one particular run to go off of and do the math, you know, basically saying, okay, well, I think that you can subtract uh, 71 thousands from the reaction time and add 71 thousands to the ET. You could say that he won. And you could also look back on previous runs and do the math and say, well, I think it was only, you know, 63 thousandths of a second, in which case he lost, right? It's unclear at best, but 
but it's like 50 50 like if you look at all of his previous tickets and say i think gary won that round like okay i i i'm not gonna argue with you like you could legitimately make an argument either way and we'll never know and that round as confusing as it got as long as it got drawn out um like that round was for a lot of money and it could have gone either way and who knows we, we can't know what kind of run Gary made on either of those first two races that got rerun. But we know in both instances, like Kevin was beatable. There were arguably his two worst runs of the entire event. On the first time that he was 17 and one above, 452 on a 451. On the second rerun, he's 007, but he was three over. Like those are runs that you would typically say, well, Gary Williams probably going to get under that. We'll never know. But if there's one person that would walk away from this feeling shortchanged, even after, you know, like essentially, quote unquote, getting three shots and, and getting perhaps a, a shot that you wouldn't always expect to get, you know, the, the, the third rerun. Um, like, I just, I, I think Gary's got the, the most legitimate beef to say, man, like this hurt me and cost me more than anyone involved. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that, Luke. Um, just like you said, we, we talk about him differently if he's a three-time winner. But I'm not sure Gary wasn't the biggest winner in this either because You're what, what he did cemented his incredible legacy. What he did when he stopped and gave KB another shot just because he wanted it done the right way cemented his incredible legacy again it was the, the classiest most sportsmanlike move the whole waiting on somebody to get their starter fixed or, or whatever that's all that's cool stuff and I'm, I'm appreciative of anybody that's that's cool enough to do that but what Gary did it'll never be matched again of course no one ever have the opportunity again most likely but hope not <laughs> <laughs> but even in the even in the twenty thousand, the fifty thousand, whatever dollar races, if that were to ever happen again, no one's ever going to do that again. That was incredible. So I also mark him the biggest winner because he displayed character and sportsmanship that is unmatched that I've never seen, and I've been racing since nineteen eighty four. Never seen anything like it. And he did that instantly, Luke. And that's a man that's got respect for his opponent, respect for the sport, and a lot of class. And, and I call that as big a move and as big a statement as whomever could have went and got that final win line. Not, not taking a thing from KB. He earned it, as I said. But what Gary did put him on another level that was very difficult for him to reach as well because of all he's accomplished. Yet that put him in higher regard in everyone's mind. There's nobody that could have watched that that didn't go, holy crap, that was cool. It feels, Jed, like it was a year ago now. <laughs> but there were actually two other races, that three other races that preceded the million-dollar main <laughs> uh, Back on, on last Tuesday, uh, $15,000 kickoff. It was an all Vega final. It had me really reevaluating my decision to be at home with a wheel standing Vega. <laughs> Kevin Rodden defeats Steve Cisco uh, in the final of that 15 grander. Wednesday's first $50,000 race, 
Nasty Nick. Um, I know we've sung his praises before. So impressive. Nick Hastings, uh, the winner on Wednesdays uh, for 50 grand over Bailey Ferraro. Um, we saw what Nick did off the bottom in Memphis and just the workmanlike, almost robotic nature of his just quality run after quality run after quality run. Um, Nick turns around two weeks later with the box in. Uh, a skill set that he obviously has, but I don't think is as noted for as his ability off the bottom bulb. And guess what? Nick makes quality run after quality run after quality run and wins a 50 grander letting go on the top. Um, versatility, talent. Um, uh, I, I don't know what else to say on Nick Hastings. It's incredible. There's nothing else you can say. The guy's on another level, as we spoke about. It doesn't matter where you're asking him to to take off on the top or the bottom. If if we went to middle bulb racing, he'd win that too. He's ultra talented, just uh, very level-headed, humble, focused. He's got all the tools that you could possibly hope for. He's disciplined. He doesn't uh, do a lot of make a lot of mistakes on the racetrack. He he's got a plan and he generally sticks to it. Um, and you know he performed extremely well on the bottom in this race, although there wasn't very many bottom bulb racers, it was a bloodbath. He performed well there, but finished it off on the top. And, you know, a lot of people were questioning, is he hitting the bottom or the top? He was hitting the top, but the runs are the same. I mean, it really doesn't, it doesn't matter where he's taken off or how he's taken off. He's making the same runs on the top of the bottom. I think the car is a tick slower on the bottom foot braking than it is letting go. But other than that, the packages look very similar, so it really didn't matter where he was, where he, what he was, method he was using, but he, um, he was definitely hitting the top, and you know, got that win over Bailey Ferraro, and it was good to see Bailey make that final round. Bailey, obviously, uh, stuffed uh, Bug McCarty's buggy in the wall at our uh, Labor Day race, and hated to see that. Bailey been a little down on himself, but um, as we'll talk about going forward, he had, uh, he had a wonderful million experience. Boy, did he ever. Bailey Ferraro follows up that $50,000 runner-up on Wednesday with a win in the second and what ended up being final $50,000 to win event of the week on Thursday. Bailey Ferraro over Josh Burrow for that 50 grander. And Bailey's a young man, like, I think in circles, uh, in certainly in, in the southeast in Florida where he's from, uh, it's no surprise that he had success on this stage nationally uh, a relatively new name to the scene and he obviously makes a huge splash on arguably the biggest stage in big dollar bracket racing at the million uh, two finals in two days uh, with 500 plus of the best racers across the country right that'll put your name on the map and it actually Jed it 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 makes me think back to just what's this so crazy it was two short years ago that a young second generation racer that wasn't necessarily a national name at that point burst onto the scene at the million dollar race. His name, Hunter Patton. Hunter won the 25 grander the day before the million, advanced to the split in the million. He was the buzz. He was the guy everybody was talking about. That was, it's hard to believe now looking back on what he has accomplished since. That was just two years ago. 
in that time, he went on and won the $500,000 main event at the Fall Fling. And that really catapulted him into this season that he's had that I think, I don't even think you can argue at this point. It's the certainly the most lucrative. I would argue the most successful from stem to stem, pole to pole, week in and week out. Uh, the most successful season that we've ever seen in big dollar bracket racing. Um, I, I think to compare the two is to put unfair expectation on Bailey Ferraro, right? We've only seen 100 patent, but there's a lot of parallels Two young second generation racers um, who got great opportunities and take full advantage of them on the biggest stage. And I guess my point here is that that event in particular having success on that stage, I think instills a level of confidence and perhaps a level of notoriety that can enable that type of ascent. Like I, said, I don't want to put the burden of that on Bailey Ferraro's shoulders, but if we look back two years from now, five years from now, and he's one of the marquee names in this sport, like, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah, look, I agree. Uh, the only difference is you know, you won't hear of Bailey winning races in Iowa and Texas and Vegas. Uh, he'll, his schedule would be somewhat limited. Well, not somewhat limited. It'll be limited in comparison to what Hunter is able to go do. So, but regionally, um, what, years, is it still limited? Cause you just said that about Hunter two years ago. <laughs> well, I just, I don't see, you know, Bailey is, uh, he's got, I guess somewhat of a job with the, with the McCarty family. So I don't think he'll travel like that, but regionally I think he'll be, you know, he's got the opportunity to, to be, you know, on that level with uh, accomplishments per event attended. So, you know, uh, I don't, again, I don't think it's fair to even get close to making that comparison. And I'm not sure Bailey desires to be, uh, you know, thought of that way, but nonetheless, accomplishing what he did on that stage was incredible, and it does have some similarities to what we saw a couple of years ago when Hunter burst on the scene. Uh, I want to close the show by one last time, I know we've done this a couple of times now, revisiting our bold predictions for the month of October. Before we do, Jed, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. We'll come back with the last reflection on October's bold predictions. Jed and I are proud to partner with Bill Taylor Enterprises. That's BTE here within the podcast. Neither of us, Jed or myself, are strangers to BTE products, services, or customer service. I've personally been using BTE transmissions and converters exclusively since 1998. Um, that's 20 years. BTE has quite literally powered every race, every championship, every round that I've won for my entire adult life. My point, they build products that I depend on. BTE builds products that Jed depends on. BTE builds products that you can depend on. Whether it's a complete top dragster or, or top sportsman power glide transmission, a torque converter designed for your specific combination, or any transmission component or bolt-on item, the folks at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed in today's ultra-competitive world of sportsman drag racing. Shop online at BTE Racing. Com. Podcast listeners, 
Are you an elite insider? If the answer is no, you should be an elite insider. The insider is a brief five minutes or less guaranteed bi-weekly video in which I answer one reader supplied question. The idea, simple. It's to help you in your quest to become the best version of yourself on the racetrack by sharing some of our own insights and experience. Did I mention that it's free? Yeah. Sign up today at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite insider. Again, that's thisisbracketracing.com slash elite insider. Bold prediction sure to go wrong, Big Jed. Coming in <laughs> the month of October, we, uh, we challenged ourselves. We had a little bit of fun. We made five blind, bold predictions for this stretch of unprecedented stretch of big dollar bracket racing. We had three million dollar races, races that had million dollar race in the name or million in the name. We had three of those in four weeks. We made some predictions coming in. We've, uh, we've looked back on them a couple of times. Now with everything in the rear view, let's see how we did. My number one prediction, Matt Dadis wins something big. It seemed like the storybook ending. Dadis didn't go to Memphis. He was at Bristol. He was at Montgomery. He went a ton of rounds, but never advanced to the final. So I guess I missed on that one. Jed, you said a female wins the guaranteed million, the great American guaranteed million in Memphis. I believe that everybody knows I've already taken credit for getting that one right since the winner's last name was Sarah, but whatever. They forget about that. Yeah. Okay. Ultimately, <laughs> you can make that argument. The, the last female standing was Mia Tedesco, who lost, I think, at the round of 32. So close, but no cigar. Number two on my end, and we shared this one. We said that the OG million, which we just dissected in full for the last two hours, would see a repeat winner in 2020. G-Dub was our last hope. So we, we whiffed on that one as well. Uh, Gary was the last former winner standing, obviously, as we rehashed repeatedly. Um, he ultimately fell in the quarterfinal round. There was a bunch of winners. I think when I first turned this on, there was 32 cars left, and I'm like, oh, we nailed this. There's definitely a former winner <laughs> winning this race. At that round, we had not only Gary Williams, Dave Triplett, Kenny Underwood, Rodney Fagan, Ray Ray Miller. I think G-Dub was the only one to advance through that round. So it was yeah, it wasn't looking great from that point on. I mean, we still had Gary, but, uh, but yeah. So close, but no cigar on that one. I'll give us a little bit of credit, but uh, ultimately we, did, we didn't, uh, we had a new, a new winner, a new name added to the, the Million Hall of Fame in Kevin Brandon. I said for number two that the Bristol Fling would set a record for a race where the car goes down the track once per round. And don't believe that happened. Um, the guys hovered around, 500 pretty much the whole time and that's one thing like that kind of gets lost now looking back like we really whiffed on that like i think we both thought there would be six seven hundred plus cars at that race and it was still big don't get me wrong at 500 but it we obviously pretty grossly overestimated that turnout yeah chris barker actually reached out to us and uh, you know his family uh, operated owned and operated bristol dragway for quite some time and this was i'm sorry this was cool by the way this is one of the coolest it, tech in all year 
It was because not only did he have the information, he had the original, you know, the paperwork, the the, the flyer, and, and how they broke it down. It was just, it was really cool memorabilia. But the 1993 uh, Mountain Mountain Empire Bracket Nationals had had 642 entrants on its biggest day. That's of, cars. of course, back then the cars went down the track only once per round, and they were not nearly as fast as they are today but they probably made up for it and go ahead and staging so um, <laughs> unlike today's racers so uh, maybe it didn't take forever to run it but it was uh it was pretty cool uh, we a hundred dollar entry got you in for a 2k a 5k and a 10k for the weekend and yeah this is, was a, I, I think buybacks were just beginning to become prevalent but there was no buyback on this flyer right yeah no buybacks and um uh, as uh, you've got in the notes here, we think that they combined the 2K and the 5K and Rich Maddie got that done for 7K and Alan Britt won Sunday's 10K. But can you imagine you wake up Sunday and you know they gave a time trial back then, Luke? <laughs> That's right. I mean, there wasn't no freaking no time run. <laughs> There's 642 and you get a time run and race. Now the buyback not having it helps a lot, but Holy cow. That's still a lot of race. That was a marathon. <laughs> 1993. All right. Yeah, that was good stuff. Thank you to Chris Barker for uh, submitting that. And at least to the best of our knowledge, that would have to be the biggest non-Norwalk, right, non-Halloween classic yeah. car count for a, an event in which, again, the car can car can only go down the track once around like essentially a, a non-double entry race so cool stuff thanks to chris barker for uh for bringing that uh, and like you say not only giving the information but providing flyers from the event photos from the event like it was pretty cool trip down memory lane and that's old sure. that's not the new facility in those pictures so cool stuff um all right one of my bold predictions number three someone advances to the semis or better at two of the three main events, okay, meaning Bristol, Memphis, Montgomery, somebody makes it to at least the semis twice. Nick Folk saved me. Just snuck in there. Nick was runner-up at Bristol, semifinalist at Montgomery. And I think this is the optimal time to give credit where credit is due for the month that Nick Folk had. Wow, right? Runner-up yeah. runner in the million-dollar main event at Bristol, advanced to the split at Memphis, down to 16 cars, I believe, and then is in the semifinal round at Montgomery. On every time that the stakes got big, Nick was a part of the conversation, and in two of the three, was deep into, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking life-changing money and very incredible amounts of pressure you know, at that point late in those races and to advance there twice in a month's time, make the split at all three. Um, really impressive. Side note, uh, I don't think I'm missing anyone here at these three events that were contested in a month's time. I believe Nick and Scotty Richardson are the only two that advanced to the split in all three events. And that, that's, um, that defies all logic, all odds. There is no racer that you would expect to be in that situation more than Nick and Scotty. And nonetheless, it's really impressive to advance to the split in three, in all three of those events. Yeah. Very impressive, Luke. And, and Brian folk shared with me 
uh, actually in Bristol when Nick runnered up, I said, man, that's got to be a relief because I figure you guys are doing it all. And he said, Jed, we figured it up for that trailer to make this stretch of races. And when he told me, Luke, what that, what that was going to cost, I was like, holy cow, you have got to have a lot of confidence in yourself and, and a pretty good checkbook to go do that. But by George, Nick made it pay off big time. I mean, making split and all three running up in one a heck of a run by him. And, and you can't, you can't overstate how impressive that was. Uh, actually, him and Scotty, you know, Scotty actually won the one Nick run it up. So making a split in all three for Scotty and, and of course, Nick, super impressive. And they both did it in two separate cars. I think that's notable. Too. Very good point. Right. Very good point. Advance that far. And, and Scotty's two cars, I guess, similar, at least similar ET. But in Nick's case, you know, you're talking 450 dragster to 570 door car, like those typically require a, at least slightly different skill set. Uh, I think it's notable too, as we look back on the season as a whole, and if we go ahead and include not just the, the three events here that were run basically uh, consecutively, but also include the SFG 1.1 million back in the summer, the four quote unquote million dollar events, I'm 99% certain that no one made it to the split in all four, but obviously Nick and Scotty made it to the split in three, Jeff Sarah and Hunter Patton also to the split in three of the four millions. Uh, really impressive feat for each of those four competitors. Yeah, just like I told Hunter, even when he does bad, he does good. So for sure. That's when things are going right. My next one was uh, one that you tied up in your number two. I said the OG million. Winner would win their second OG million. Obviously, there was not a repeat winner, so I skipped past that. My uh, number two was no racer will win more than one day during this uh, unprecedented stretch of million dollar races and I, I included all races in that but there were some folks that challenged that one Luke I mean serious challenges um, obviously we talked about Nick Folk at length Nick Hastings had a win there he semied uh, the guaranteed million uh, Dauber had a couple of runner-ups Bailey Farrar won and runner up and J.R. Barclay going deep and a couple so a couple of guys or a few guys had uh had me up against the wall there just needed to put the knockout punch to me and i'm sure they would have loved to but that one actually held up uh, my uh my fourth and i'll give myself credit for this one i, I think this one was a was a a double at least this was this was a base hit uh the og million has a typical crowd for the surrounding events the 50 granders typical crowd or bigger than we're used to seeing and there was a lot of uh talk that the 50s wouldn't be well supported this year because obviously the purse went up significantly and as a result the entry fee went up significantly and the buzz was you've priced this out of the wheelhouse of your market and i said no this is this is what this market wants like they want to race for more money this is actually a better race than what we've had in the past people are going to go and I don't know exactly what the comparison is to say last year or year prior. That 500 entries in the last 50 grander, like that's solid. I'll take credit for that one. Yeah, that was very good um, recognition on your part that, that people still want to attend. Again, the race that for two and a half decades we've all dreamed of winning. So um, it definitely came to fruition that 509 being their biggest crowd and they were you know, very happy, very pleased with the size crowd. They 
we're able to have a buyback, which you know I personally like. I like a do-over. I like to have that opportunity, and probably financially for them, it worked out really good. Um, they were right there on the edge where you can or can't have one. They had it and got them done. So good on their part. Worked out really good, and that was a, it. Was great to see a huge crowd there once again. My uh, my. Go, oh, go ahead. Here, Jed, just because I, I I think we got more to talk about on yours. My my final prediction was that the West Coast presence would be felt. I went so far as to say we would see a finalist in one of the three million dollar main events that hailed from west of the Rocky Mountains. That one was a brick. Uh, Shane Thompson got the closest at the first. It was down to five cars at Bristol. I don't really remember. I think Greg Hicks was probably the last West Coaster standing in Memphis. And I don't know that any got particularly close at Montgomery. As you mentioned last episode, most of that side of the country went back to race the uh, the Fall Fling Vegas and, uh, and wasn't at Montgomery anyhow. So Chris Northrup probably made the, the deepest run of any of the West Coast racers at, uh, at Montgomery. Yep, you're right on with that. But uh, just not many opportunities uh, hampered that one from being able to happen. Um, so my number one was that Hunter Patton does – Hunter Patton – doesn't win any of the main event million races and um well i tell you what hunter and i talked about that quite a bit over over the million and uh, he kind of razzed me a little bit and i razzed him but like i told him it's a bold prediction because it is likely to happen that's so you're making a bold prediction and it doesn't happen and so the, the, i felt like the odds were against me making that prediction and <laughs> doggone if he didn't if he didn't just about get it done Luke. Again, I mean, it's, it's incredible. We mentioned earlier, you know, he, he was in the split, you know, which is typically the last 16-ish cars at three of the $4 million races in 2020. That's not easy to do. And the thing about Hunter is he wasn't like on the, on the periphery. He wasn't on the edge of the split. Okay. At the 1.1 in Martin, semifinalist. At the Memphis guaranteed million, down to six cars in Montgomery. It's down to eight cars, like quarterfinal or deeper in $3 million races in one year. And then you just combine that with all of the wins on all of the various stages, all of the accolades. And to your point, Jed, like his bad weekends are like weekends that the average racer, that would be the, the, the event that they talked about for the year. Like that time that I semi to 20 grander, like that was almost his worst weekend of the year. Yeah, Remember, I would have posted on Facebook be... about how good I did. Right. And he's upset. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say he's upset, Hunter. Hunter understands. He's having a phenomenal twelve months. It is. I mean, it's as I said before. It's the most lucrative season that we've ever seen. I think I'm to the point now. I'm ready to argue that it's the best season I've ever seen. I mean, just top to bottom, the the consistency, not only the consistency in performance, uh, like the runs that he's making, quality, but just the consistency in every week. If he's not in the final, he's in the semis. If he's not in the semis, he's in the quarters. Like his off weeks are solid and just seemingly never has a significant lapse. And to do it at that level in today's competition for essentially, I mean, we're talking like 40 straight weekends, more or less. It's just really impressive. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's close this out with a couple of randoms, a couple of non-million-dollar race items. Uh, we'll 
circle back more to NHRA competition next week as the uh, as the world finals go on this weekend in Vegas. Obviously, one more division race yet to go in Vegas as well. Uh, but three world championships have been settled and clinched. Craig Bourgeois. Uh, NHRA competition eliminator world champion for the second time. Young Christopher Dodd earns the super comp world championship. That's official. That's over. Brian Warner joins his brother Byron as a super stock national champion. Those three are over. The other sportsman classes yet to be determined. We'll get back to that more next week. In addition, this weekend brings the finale of the This Is Bracket Racing Driver Series. Uh, this weekend's event at Bowling Green is the last event in the series. We will crown the champions to that early next week. Again, we'll have more on that on next week's episode here of the podcast. And one quick wrap-up uh, from last week. I think I brought this up twice, Jed, once when we were together, once with Kevin McKenna, and we didn't have a distinct answer. I think we have a distinct answer from Trivia Time. Given James Kunkel's success, my question for you, my question for Kevin was, Kunkel's going to finish in the top 10 in Supercomp this year in a door car with a top 10 stop. Cool story, right? Great story. We've had James on the show. Who, my question was, who is the last driver to finish in the top 10 in NHRA Supercomp national point standings with a door car? Kevin got the brain trust on it. As best we can tell, and if we're wrong, if you want to debate this, let us know. But as best we can tell, the last driver to do that, Larry Scarth, out in Division 7, the year 2001. So James Kunkel is doing something that has not been done in two decades. I thought everybody knew Larry did that 20 years ago. I don't know you guys having trouble figuring that out, Luke. Hey, you didn't pipe in on that, huh? You should have just asked me. I mean, I, I had all that. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, we've been here for two hours put a bow on it for me yeah episode 202 has got stretch marks on it Luke it is big so uh, hope you've enjoyed the show folks appreciate you listening this long it's been great stuff great talking about what uh, events have taken place recently and hope you enjoyed our, our take and I guess um, wrap up of it if you will but this one's done 202 is in the books we certainly appreciate you, you listen to us. We hope that you, you go support our sponsors any and every chance you get. We appreciate them helping us bring the show to you. Uh, Luke and I would love to hear some feedback from you. We can do that on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. You can message us there or you can just make a post. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't, what we did right or wrong or what you want to hear more of, whatever. Just tell us something. And um, if you'd like to use Twitter, Luke and I are very active on that. He is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. And Luke, I don't know if you even got them in you, but it's time for some shout-outs. Listen, we're two hours and 20 minutes into this. I got nothing. I'm going to let the listener go. Thanks for listening. Uh, Shouts to Stephanie Bustin-Nass and, uh, and Johnny Brackett Racer. Just why, why not, right? Yeah, no doubt. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We look forward to talking to you again soon about more sports than drag racing.
founding story to take precedence over the tremendous accomplishment. <sighs> yes, Jack. <laughs> Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.